BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey guys, this is Matt Seidel, and you're listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome To keeping it strong style The ace of podcasts On the social suplex podcast network Jeremy Donovan here With the young boy Josh Smith on today's show, we'll review the new beginning in Osaka, preview Battle in the Valley, and cover all the latest news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping a strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating interview. You can also get the podcast over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, ProWrestlingTees.com slash Social Suplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting SocialSuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This episode is brought to you by the NJPWEXT, the only Browser extension for NJPWWorld.com. Frequently updated and with features like dark mode, improved tra- translations and layouts, custom and shared plays, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPWWorld to the next level. You can visit NJPWEXT.USDay for details. Young boy, good job manning the fort last week with the solo episode, man. Thanks. Uh, did you even listen? Yes, yes, <laughs> I did. Episode? <laughs> I did. I listened to it today while I was working. Okay. I, I just figured, you know, with you going off and having a marriage retreat, you probably didn't have time to uh, listen to the episode, but I'm glad you found time to get away from, you know, your marriage to 
you know, spend time on this, which is important. So, you know, big, big priority in my life, you know? Yeah. The the number one priority. Like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, man. That, um, that episode, I'm, I listened to the audio. Here's the thing. Um, for me, I listen to every podcast at 2x speed. So, when I first hear my own audio at one speed, it just sounds atrocious to me. But then once the full production came out and was published on red circle and I listened to it, I was like, okay, it's not that bad, but there was a lot of technical snafus. There was a lot of issues. It was a fucking nightmare last week trying to get that (laughs) audio out. Um, I think it's time for me to put my big boy pants on and just like, we, you know, uh, I don't want to delve too much into it, but like, you know, you guys have been supporting us a little bit. Maybe I get a computer and maybe I learn how to use like audacity or something. And like that way I'm not like struggling. The, I don't want to get into it, but like it, it, it is life and death when I'm recording. Like, <laughs> well, I thought you had the, the perfect analogy where you're like, you know, we're a tag team. You're, you're the hot tag guy. Come in the, the big boot on the baby face in peril. You know, they get, they get the heat on me. You come in, you know, do the, do the big boot, get the hot tag in. I get the finish. I think it's yeah, a per- you like that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought of that on the dome. That was off the riff. I recorded like six or seven times, and that's the only recording that had that bit in it. So it wasn't one that I was redoing. So, yeah. Um, yeah, every now and again, I, I come up with a good little zinger. Yeah. You know? What you should have done, though, you know, keep kayfabe and been like, yeah, this is super easy. You know, this is one one take. <laughs> Bro, I couldn't do that. Like, <laughs> I was too frazzled. You have no idea. And then, you know, and th- uh, shout out to Rich for helping me get the, the episode. Even like right now, I'm like frazzled, even like reliving the memory of doing that episode. With shout out to Rich for uh, helping me post production, kind of quasi edit the thing. Although I did, I just, I'm going to put him on blast. I was like, yo, can you fade in the music in the beginning and the outro? And he was like, yeah, no problem. And then I listened to it and it didn't fade in in the beginning. I was like, oh, I guess he just couldn't do it, whatever. You know, and I, I didn't want to say anything because beggars can't be choosers. But then when I finished the episode, he faded in my music at the end. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> then I hit him up about it and he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to do that. <laughs> he's like, why didn't you say anything? And I was like, bro, I didn't want to say anything because I thought. I didn't know how hard it, like, to me, he was like, it, t- it would have took me 12 seconds. And I was like, bro, I don't know that. I have no idea how to, like, layer music and voice and all that. Like, I'm not a, you know, engineer like him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, but yeah. I, I'm glad you're back, bro, because <laughs> I, 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 I don't think if I had to do this show solo, I would keep doing it. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it oh, I don't know. It's funny. Bro, like, if God forbid something happened and we were unable to record, like, let's say, like, you know, I don't know, you gambled away all your your life savings and you were down and out living on the streets of Tampa, right? And I had to hold down the fort. I might be able to do that for a little while, but damn, bro, like, I don't know how long I could keep it up. Like, that was tough. <laughs> well, the episode it, it made it live. It, it hit the feeds. Overall, sounded good. I thought you had some great uh, ratings, takes, and opinions. On the new beginning in Sapporo, uh, a lot it's went down. It's not a game. That's right. Uh, but you know, we got a lot of stuff to uh, cover this week. So let's let's. Are you want to tell people about your marriage retreat? I didn't even know what a marriage retreat was. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. So I mean, I was at the the Windshape uh, retreat in Rome, Georgia. 
beautiful 27,000 acre uh, property um, attached to Barry College. And so uh, beginning of the week, it was a, a staff retreat. So everybody at my company uh, got flew up to, to Rome, Georgia. A lot of like team building activities, a lot of um, talks on just kind of improving communication, stuff like that. Really, it's kind of good uh, team building moments. And then in the middle of the week, um, turned into a marriage retreat. So anybody on staff uh, who had a spouse, their spouse got flew up. And the retreat was also open to a lot of our donors that support our organization. And so we had a speaker uh, named Ted Lowe, did some uh, marriage talks. And so, you know, it's like a car. What if you were single? If you were single, you had to go home. Oh. <gasps> Bro, that's discriminatory. Your your <laughs> job can't do that. <laughs> that's fucked up. Uh, you yeah. guys need to have like a, a singles retreat while the marriage retreat is going on. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, the single folks or people whose spouses couldn't make it, they, they had to, to fly back home. Uh, Bro, I'm going to write a strongly worded letter to your job about this. I'm I'm offended right now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I was able to stay, enjoy the marriage retreat really good. You know, marriage is like a car, you know, you, you take your car in to get an oil change to keep it running Uh marriage retreat. You know, you get some good advice and feedback from other couples and from speakers to, you know, keep that marriage going strong, keep the marriage running. So, uh, I think it, it's probably like a oil change. Cause I got an oil change last week and they were trying to upcharge me on a bunch of shit. shit and I was like, no, nah, I don't need you to do any of that. I can do all those things. <laughs> don't charge me $50 for a $12 fix. And I feel like that's what marriage is like, right? Uh, I, right? Wouldn't, I, I wouldn't quite say that. I mean, uh, or, or how about this? They were like, the oil change can be $60. And I was like, no, it's not. I, I've been getting my oil change here forever. I know it's like $32. He's like, oh, I forgot to apply the discount. So you got to call them on their bullshit. It's just like marriage. I get it. Um, Never been married, but I get it. <laughs> I get it. Not not quite like that, but um, you You're know, always trying to take from you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, overall, really great um, week. Uh, great stuff there, both retreats and a lot of really great food. Uh, good timing, good weather. But I am I'm happy to uh, be back here in Tampa, Florida. Happy to be back and here covering New Japan. Like we say, you know, we, we always joke, we use the MLW phrase, you know, the world New Japan never stops. And it is true, you know, as I came back and was catching up on all the news and uh, catching up on these shows, yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in New <laughs> Japan right now. Good and bad, mostly good, but some, you know, kind of baffling, puzzling stuff. I'm sure we're going to get into it, but uh, yeah, man, um, new beginning in Osaka, big the big show. Yeah, so this was a uh, February. It's a big show. No new room, new view, new attitude. <laughs> I don't know what that is. That's the AEW song. That's the AEW one. I don't. I I've never seen him. Re- he's only wrestled once, so I don't know his AEW theme. <laughs> I'm pretty. Weren't you? You were at the Orlando one, right? Dynamite we went to when he came out. Did he wrestle there? Yeah, it was like on AEW Dark or something. I don't remember that. I what at the UCF arena? Yeah, bro, I literally don't remember that. <laughs> but yes, I was there. Oh <laughs> uh, man! But yeah, new beginning in Osaka, February 11th. This was in the Edion Arena in Osaka. A sold-out crowd of 4,055, and uh, I know there was still some capacity kind of set up due to you know. COVID restrictions due to the timing of when the COVID announcements were made and what the building wanted to do. So there still was um, some capacity kind of seating, spacing 
Um, but overall, they sold all the tickets they had. 4,055 crowds were able to be vocal and cheer and loud throughout the whole show. And we had a question here from Dom Homie 101. Thoughts on the crowd reaction from the Osaka show? I would say that, in my opinion, this was the single best crowd since what was the Wrestle Kingdom before the pandemic? Uh, Wrestle Kingdom, that would be 2020. That would have been, uh, what, Naito winning the double belts and right. Kenta attacking him afterwards? Right. That was Wrestle Kingdom, what, 13, 14? I think so, yeah. This was the best crowd that we've had for New Japan in Japan, and maybe overall since that time. That's my personal feeling on it. And I thought they were just super hot the whole night and really added a lot to the presentation. Even though I think a lot of people, I've seen reviews and they've said that to them, this was one of the best shows probably of the year. And I'm not sure I feel as strongly in that direction as others do. I do think that the crowd had a lot to do with why people feel that way. This crowd was vintage peak New Japan. Yeah, the crowd was electric and really just helped the atmosphere of the show. It helped elevate a lot of the matches and angles on the show. And yeah, like you mentioned, probably the best crowd since uh, before the pandemic. And it just really made you feel like, all right, New Japan is back. We got these hot crowds, big building, great matches, great storylines. It's like everything is kind of hitting on all cylinders right now for New Japan. Yeah, no women, too. <laughs> Vintage New Japan. No women's titles. No women, you know, accompanying the men to ringside. Vintage New Japan, the way it was meant to be. <laughs> Shinihan. Yeah, well, we'll see about that when we talk about uh, Battle in the Valley <laughs> a little bit later on. And for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, just know I am joking. <laughs> yeah, it's a running bit. Um, but yeah, and yeah, welcome to any uh, new new listeners that are, are joining us uh, along the way here. People diving in, really wanting to you know follow New Japan from you know from Wrestle Kingdom, Wrestle Kingdom. So we're we're here to guide you on that journey. Yeah. Thanks, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, let's jump into the show. Yeah, so uh show opened up. We had the United Empire team of Aaron Hanare and Great Okan. They defeated Oscar Lobe and Toroyano six minutes and thirty-eight seconds. I don't have too much insight here. Um I thought it was a a fine opener for the show. Um obviously for those of you if you're not familiar, anytime there's a young lion involved. You sort of know what to expect. They're probably going to be eating a pinfall. And that's exactly what we got here with Oscar Luebe, you know, doing the honors. But, um, you know, this wasn't overly great, but it wasn't bad either. I was impressed with Aaron Hanare's offense as I continue to be time and time again. He's a guy that I really think that they should give a little bit more spotlight to, you know. Yeah, I feel like Hanare has worked really hard, you know, building his physique. He's put on a ton of muscle. He's done a lot of the Muay Thai training and incorporated a lot of that Muay Thai uh, striking into his game. And also, too, kind of with like the rugby background, throwing some of that in here. And, yeah, he's been looking really good. And I definitely think he's a guy that they need to continue to invest in and elevate up the card. And he did pick up the win here. He uh, hit a, a big leaping knee on Oscar Followed up by the rampage, which is that, that kind of rugby tackle. Hits it out of nowhere, and Hanare picks up the win. 
No, did he used to call that the Streets of Rage, or is that a different move? Streets of Rage is his um, finisher, his Death Valley driver looking thing that he does. Mm, okay, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, I I love that flying knee. I'm actually pretty much going to support anybody that wears Muay Thai shorts in wrestling. I don't know what the deal is, but I just like it. I liked it when uh, Alistair Black was doing it. The only time I liked Punk during his entire run was the one fight that he wore <laughs> the Muay Thai shorts against Eddie Kingston. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm down with that. But uh, I thought it was good. Oscar Luebe continues to impress. I think that he's a guy that right now um, people on the outside looking in, like Dave Meltzer, for instance, doesn't see too much potential or promise there. But I think with his size and you know going through that system, he's going to be something, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. Once he continues to get the mechanics down and builds a character, I think he's going to be great. I've said this before about um, Andrew Villalobos over in the uh, Fale Dojo, and I actually think these two guys have similar frames, but um, Oscar Luebe's frame sort of reminds me of, like, Killer Kowalski. Mm. Yeah, or even, like... A skinnier version of Walter. Bro, that's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, skinny Walter. A skinnier Walter. <laughs> but his limbs are longer than Walter's are, and that's kind of why he gives me, like, Killer Kowalski vibes a little bit there. Yeah. So then following that, we had a multi-man tag match here. The LIJ team of Bushi, Hiromu Takahashi, Sonata, and Tetsuya Naito defeated Risuke Taguchi, Shota Umino, Tiger Mask and Tomooki Hanma, eight minutes and forty three seconds. Here's how deep the Sonata slump has gone. In a match with Tiger Mask Four, Shota Umino, Taguchi, and Tomooki Hanma, I was convinced Sonata was going to eat the pinfall <laughs> in this match. Yeah, there's definitely yeah something going on, some kind of story they're telling uh, with Sonata. He's been losing a lot of matches lately. Uh, ate the pinfall in a multi-man match a few weeks ago from uh, the roughneck Shota Umino. So yeah, not quite sure what's going on with Sonata. Uh, but you know, this match was kind of following up the story of Naito and Umino from New Beginning in Sapporo. And you know, I didn't get my chance to give my comments on that match. I just want to say I know I saw a lot of people. Ragging on the match, saying how horrible the match was, how, how not good it was. I know Dave gave it like 2.75, something like that. And I don't think the match was that bad. Um, it was a long match. It was probably longer than what it needed to be. But honestly, I put a lot of the blame on why that match was not great on actually New Japan. I, I think the, the structure of the match was badly booked considering who the two guys were and the match shouldn't have gone that long. It should probably shouldn't have been the main event and they should have known that structure that Naito would have been way more over than Umino. And so, you know, the whole thing was he's supposed to be getting heat on Umino. The crowd's supposed to be getting behind him and that totally fell flat because the crowd, they could cheer and they wanted to cheer for Naito. Um, So I think a lot of how everything was kind of structured and set up, I, I think Umino was kind of set up to fail. Yes. Did he have moments in the match where he looked a little bit confused. There was a little bit of botching, miscommunications. Yes, that was all there. But I also feel like um, he was not set up to succeed with the the story of the match and how everything was laid out. Man, listen to this cope right here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Um, I, I don't know if I totally agree, but obviously I got last week to kind of put my thoughts to audio. So for anyone that wants to check that out, 
it's in the archives. But I do think that that's an interesting point you bring up there, Jeremy, that they sort of structured this in a way to where he wasn't really set up to succeed, even if, you know, maybe the match itself was structured to get sympathy on him. They should have known that in that environment with how hot Naito's been and how hot he continues to be, that it might be very difficult to get this young upstart over in that crowd. You know what I mean? Right. And you have to wonder, was that by design? I don't know. I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, put on the tinfoil hat, but they obviously, I, I brought this up last week, they had him lose, so there's a narrative there anyways that maybe it was too much too soon for the returning Shoto Mino. Could they perhaps have, I don't know, self-sabotaged on purpose? Maybe it's part of a, a greater narrative. Does that sound like, or is that is that just a dumb idea that they would never do that? You know what I mean? I mean, it's possible. I mean, they could do that. Like you mentioned last week that they could use this in promo videos down the road where it's like, you know, Umino failed at first, and now he's finally, you know, at the, the moment where he's going to beat Naito and succeed, and it's all used as a, as a story to kind of to build him up. Um, so it's possible that they did that on purpose, but also to the other end, like, why would you want to, you know, purposely sabotage somebody that you you see as is the future you want to build up? Or even just a big main event match like that. Like, obviously, this is a company that a lot of their successes, a lot of the... Um, word of mouth support they get is based off their in-ring quality. And so when you have a big match like that, that maybe doesn't live up to expectations. uh, I don't know how beneficial that is overall, but I don't put it beyond them to have, maybe they didn't envision it failing quite as spectacularly as it (laughs) did, but you know, maybe they were sort of anticipating and maybe counting on some of that for the, to, you know, shape their narrative. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I thought Umino looked good in this match, but ultimately it was Hiromu who got the win here, hitting the Time Bomb 2 on Risuke Taguchi. And then after the match, lights go out, and we have Leo Rush's music playing and a video interrupting, and Leo Rush challenges Hiromu Takahashi for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title, which we found out today will be happening at the New Japan Cup Finals. Yeah, I really love that idea just because um, in the past, the New Japan Cup Finals, it's a big show, granted, of course, because of the nature of what it is. It's a tournament final show. But the last few years, it sort of felt like a one-match show and everything on the undercard was just you know inconsequential fallout from the tournament itself. Yeah. And so it's nice to see that they're kind of pairing another title match on the undercard. And we're kind of in that time frame within new japan's calendar where it's like uh you know we have the anniversary show coming up you have the new japan cup and then right after that you sort of also have sakura genesis so there's a lot of plus any potential you know u.s pay-per-view dates that they they might be running with the new you know strong structure so there are a lot of opportunities and then not even that just also the all-star junior show coming up on March 6th. So there was a lot of places they could have put this, but I feel like putting it on that, um, that tournament final night is kind of a a departure from what we've seen recently. And I I think it's a welcome one. Yeah. Especially too, with, you know, this year it seems like, you know, there's no juniors in the new Japan cup. They're kind of going back traditional, just, just heavyweight. So 
like you mentioned, you know, juniors are not going to be in the spotlight at all for the for the month of March. So I think, yeah, ending the the, the tournament you know, that last closing show having a junior title match is definitely a great spot for it to, you know, highlight the juniors and plus it'll play right in rolling into the the All Star Junior Festival uh, that will be happening, you know, shortly after that. So I think it's definitely a good way to get a ton of eyes on what's going on in the junior division. Yeah, maybe now at this point of the show, it's not the perfect time to have a full-blown discussion about the New Japan Cup, but those brackets, it's not just juniors that were left off. There's a lot of kind of weird uh, decisions for for that tournament. But um, as far as this matchup goes, I think it's really great. Uh, Leo Rush looked fantastic all throughout that junior tag team tournament. league that the uh, super junior tag league that he was involved in back in um, December. And then the match that he had at wrestle kingdom, him and yo, they did a great job. I liked this video package where he sort of framed it. Like if you're see, it, it seemed like in kayfabe, he taped it a long time ago as a, just in case if yo didn't win, then we'll play this. And he even said so in the tape. He was like, if you're seeing this, and that means my tag team partner, Yo, was unsuccessful in challenging, which means I get next crack at you, Hiromu, which I liked that. I liked that he sort of all the way, like had the forethought back then to like be like, I figured it out. I've been watching New Japan. I know what happens. <laughs> Wato and Ishimori think that if one of them wins, they're going to get a title shot. No, I'm going to... I can't be there physically. I got to be in Jersey. You know, I got to do a job to Joy Janela. But before that <laughs> happens, I'm sending you a tape. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going to jump the line and get my title match. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Leo Rush versus Hiromu. That should be uh, an excellent matchup. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a first-time matchup, and it's one that they've kind of teased since the early stages of the, of the pandemic. There was, a, uh, there was a Twitter link that was put out by friends over at the super J cast and they were talking about like fever dream things that could have happened um, during the pandemic that no one would believe happened. And I, I put a thing out there about show and it got a lot of traction, but there was like a million things I could have potentially put out there. One of them was like, remember there was a super J cup in an empty arena <laughs> in like December of like 2020 and like no one remembers it or ever talked about it. And like, that was Leo Rush's like introduction to new Japan yeah, I, I almost forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot about it too, but it happened. It's, it's fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, speaking of juniors, uh, the following match was a, a little junior grudge match between the former champion, the Bone Soldier, Taiji Ishimori. He defeats Master Wato 11 minutes and 18 seconds. Yeah, these guys both came out with the boo-boo face. They realized... <laughs> You know, this de facto number one contenders match wasn't a number one contenders match at all. What what are we even doing this for? (laughs) Right. They got worked. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And also, I want to say last week, even though, you know, you said the audio was good. I I don't feel like last week's show was a success. I don't know if I've ever gotten this many predictions wrong leading (laughs) into a big New Japan show. I was pretty confident that Wato was... You know, I mean, Ishimori just, I thought that this was a quasi title, you know, eliminator. And Ishimori just kind of came off the belt very recently. I felt like it was too soon for him to sort of be lined up. Wato seemed to be the guy that the company was getting behind back in January, you know, as a potential challenger. I thought that if you were going to 
have him finally beat Ishimori like clean on a big stage in a definitive manner. This is where you do it. And yeah, after 11 minutes, I found out like, no, that's not what we're doing <laughs> at all. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking that Ishimori was going to, I mean, that uh, Watto was going to win this too, just because, yeah, well, why does Ishimori need to win right now? Like, he's probably not going to get a title rematch anytime soon. So you're, you're working on building young talent, elevating people. So, yeah, mm-hmm. to, to me, this seemed like the right spot for Watto to get that big, you know, I know he previously beat Ishimori in that non-title match at the end of last year, but this would have been a more, you know, definitive, big stage, cheering crowd, let's get Watto over. But they decided to go a different route with uh, Ishimori getting the win here. You know, New Japan, for all of its sports-centric, I don't know, I don't know what word I was going to say there, like sports, sports-centricity, <laughs> they don't always follow the same kind of kayfabe logic that you would see in, say, like the UFC or some other, like, major sports league. You can be on a losing streak and find yourself just through happenstance as a title challenger and even potentially win the title if the situation calls for it. So it's not like this is, you know, I don't want to ring the alarm bell and be like, you know, be over dramatic and be like, this is the end of Watto. But it does kind of feel like if you were ever going to go with the guy with the momentum you were giving him, why not give him the win here? You know, especially since we already know that it wasn't necessarily even a number one contenders match, but he has a pinfall victory over Wato or over Ishimori, you know, via the crucifix pin. Uh, He looked credible coming out of January 4th. This didn't feel like we were starting a redemption quote-unquote storyline. It felt like he was sort of the rising guy. We've already seen him eat his, pay his dues, eat his big losses, fail his tests. And this just kind of feels like for his trajectory, more of the same. And for Ishimori, too. This is probably the least dynamic booking decision you could have possibly done here. It's extremely par for the course. And I, I do get it. Like, Ishimori's a big star, especially in the junior ranks. But we've seen him have multiple, multiple title reigns at this point. I don't think eating this loss would have hurt him in any real way. But I do think it hurts Watto because now in kayfabe, I find him much less believable as a viable contender. Right. So if Ishimori winning, yeah, he just kind of, Ishimori kind of outside just stays where he's at, you know, top junior guy. But Wata losing, it's almost downcycling him back to, you know, opener status, junior tag team kind of status with Taguchi. Uh, it's not, not elevating him, and he's a guy right. that really needed the elevation here. There's, I think there is upside of Wato, but like you said, you have to make him credible. And they right. were they were on that roll with that with the surprise win over Ishimori, then in the incredible tag match, and then being in the the title match at the Tokyo Dome. Like he was in a lot of big moments, and they were really kind of building him up there as this guy that should be in the picture. I thought at Wrestle Kingdom, he made it clear, like, yes, I I, I might not be the greatest junior, but I can hang with the top juniors in this division. And so they kind of kind of reverse what some of what they did there with him losing here. Yeah, and I mean, it's not to say, again, I don't want to be alarmist. That's why I sort of gave those qualifiers in the beginning. Is it still viable and possible he winds up carrying the, the, the title in some capacity down the line? Sure. I mean, he could still become a challenger. It's, no, it's not outside the realm of possibilities. But he will be colder 
at this point after eating this loss on a big show like this. Um, and let's say they do decide to, to go with, with him with the title reign um, with this kind of trajectory. I don't, I don't imagine personally that it's going to be one that sets the world on fire. And then we're going to be asking ourselves questions like, well, what could they have done to improve this? And it's like, well, he probably should have won some of these bigger matches in the lead up to a potential title run or a title reign or what, what have you. Of course, best of super juniors is always around the corner. So there's always may, and that can change people's fortunes. And so you, you never say never, but this one was one where I was a little more so than most of the other decisions that I got wrong. This is the one that kind of left me scratching my head the most. Yeah. Yeah, so towards the end of the match there, uh, Wato, well, the whole match, he was trying to hit the Rosita Mente, which is a move he used to beat uh, Ishimori at the end of last year. He kept going for that, but Ishimori was able to counter it. It's a leaping knee followed by a lariat and then hits the bloody cross to uh, get the pinfall win over, Ishi- or over Master Wato. So then moving on from there, we had the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi, defeating Kenta 13 minutes and 57 seconds. We had a, uh, a toothless ace here as he uh, his front teeth were uh, missing due to biting into a protein bar. It's a- Bro, you know I'm an unabashed Stanahashi, okay? <laughs> I stand this man. I love Tanahashi. And um, when he came out toothless looking like Mark Briscoe, I, I was beside myself. I... <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I thought I hallucinated for a second. And then I remembered that they've been running all these unaired, untaped house shows. And I was like, oh, my God, this this fucker Kenta laid it in too stiff and knocked this dude's teeth out. That's what I literally thought for like half a second. I was like, I was like, damn it, this motherfucker knocked this knocked the ace's teeth out. And now now he, he's got to look like this. And then I and then I thought for a second I was like wait a second didn't he already get his teeth knocked out by somebody and sure enough they recalled that he's always had false teeth for about a decade now ever since his you know matches with uh, Okada and in fact it wasn't an errant blow from Kenta on an on a house show he just bit into a protein bar the wrong <laughs> way and uh, you know pulled his uh, false teeth out so um, hopefully by the time. Uh, he competes again for New Japan at Battle in the Valley. Uh, there will be visual repairs because I don't like to see the ace looking like that. You know, I like to see <laughs> see with the pearly whites. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, I was worried there for a second. Yeah, def- definitely a little bit. Yeah, jarring <laughs> kind of seeing that. Uh, but overall, this was a you know a fine matchup. Tanahashi and Kenta, like you mentioned last week, have been linked together. Since Kenta came into New Japan 2019 in the G1 and have kind of had this back and forth rivalry going. And then, of course, remember oh, the match that happened um, not last year, Trust Kingdom, but the year before, where the, um, you know, the big uh, no DQ match that they had for the U.S. title, where uh, Kenta got put out of action for like, half the year from that crazy wild uh, no DQ match they had. So they've had a long history, big rivalry, personal heat here. And, you know, this was another good match, not their best match. Uh, kind of the big thing here, there was um, a ref bump towards the end of the match. Uh, Kenta did a, a schoolboy, and when he when Tanashi kicked out, Kenta dramatically jumped up and fell on top of the ref, which then led to um, 
all kinds of shenanigans happening here. Um, Kenta uh, bringing a chair in and uh, does the, he went for the the drop toe hold, but Tanahashi dropped toe toe hold Kenta on the chair, and then Kenta was able to do it to Tanahashi as well. Uh, but then the ref got back in, got the chair um, out of the ring. But then uh, Tanahashi was eventually able to hit the sling blade. Then the aces high before the high fly flow to get the win over Kenta. Yeah, very surprised by this decision. Um, by the end of the night, things would become much more clear as to why they went this way. But, you know, I was sitting here just thinking, like, Kenta is about to challenge Fred Rosser for the strong openweight title in about a week's time. He needs to be going into there as strong as possible and heat it up. And Tanahashi hasn't had a major singles victory in quite a while. I mean, I feel like the last time he had a major singles victory was probably like during the G1 in the summer. I could, and maybe if he has had something else besides that, I don't recall. But, um, you know, he's been mainly spending most of his time in like tag team efforts and multi-mans and hasn't really had a lot of shine or spotlight put on him in that way for, right. for a bit. So it didn't feel like he was on his way to any sort of great big thing. And even himself back in the uh, backstage comments not too long ago was like, you know, I want to get another title shot, but I need to be, and he had like a laundry list of, of individuals that he needed to run through first. It just seemed like a, a pipe dream. Little did I know, all you got to do is beat Kenta one time. <laughs> <laughs> and then you could be a number one contender for the world title. That's That's all it takes in this company, you know? And the funny thing is, well, I mean, we'll get to it, but I mean, Okada called him out. He didn't even make the challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was like, well, I guess you're here. You'll do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, I did think it was kind of weird for Kenta to lose, especially going into that strong openweight title match coming up this weekend. Like you mentioned, yeah, Tanahashi's been kind of downcycled, really hasn't done um, a lot of big things here. So yeah, all signs led to Kenta getting the win, but it was the ace who uh, pulled through here. Uh, defeated the Noah Trash and Kenta and uh, got the win here in the rivalry. And uh, post-match, it seemed like uh, Tanahashi was trying to uh, make amends with Kenta uh, and try to, you know, bury all the bad blood. But Kenta just kind of rolled out the ring, was having none of it. Yeah, the last singles match that Tanahashi had was in December at Tradition against Tatsumi Fujinami in that, um, you know, generational ace versus dragon match and then prior to that i mean didn't he wrestle a uh, gabe kid he wrestled gabe kid on strong back in october and then if we're talking new japan proper it was carl anderson for the never title so we're talking all the way back like he hasn't really been involved in anything major since september against carl anderson wow <laughs> So that's kind of why I was like, I don't see it. And you know, the funny thing too, and we'll get to it, but like we, we were asked recently on a episode a few weeks back, did we think that it was a viable oper- you know, option for them to do Okada and Tanahashi at Battle in the Valley? We, were, we both kind of were really dismissive of that notion. And like we gave all these you know, valid reasons why we didn't think that they were going to do that. And uh, yeah, we were wrong. You're just wrong a lot (laughs) Past few weeks (laughs) Um, So uh, following that matchup We had the first title match of the evening 
We had the never open weight six man tag team titles on the line, and we crowned new champions. El Desperado, Minoru Suzuki, and Ren Narita defeated the House of Torture, Evil Show, and Yujiro Takahashi. Uh, Pre match, there was an announcement made that if House of Torture refused to defend their titles, they would be stripped of them. This whole tour, they've been kind of trying to dodge this trio of Narita, Desperado, and Suzuki. And, you know, eating several losses to these guys in multi-man matchups, and they did not want to defend the belts. This originally was a non-title match, but the uh, Never Committee made it a title match, and if the champs refused to show up, they were going to be stripped. Yeah, I was about to say, like, the Never Committee is a lot more stringent and badass than the IWGP <laughs> Committee. They don't take shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, They're oh, like, oh, oh, our titles are... uh you know, defunct, our titles are retired. Okay, well, we will strip you. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, evil in the house of torture, They sh- what they should have done is been like, all right, well, come take them from us. And then they should have pulled a Brock Lesnar and left with the belts, never to be seen again. That would have <laughs> been, if, if the trade-off would have been, we never, we lose the never six-man openweight tag team titles, but the house of torture is gone, like for real, for real gone. I would have happily let them take those belts out of this company. Happily. <laughs> that would have been a, a sacrifice uh, worth dealing with. <laughs> yeah, we're willing to make that sacrifice. Okay. But um, no, this, this match was fine. Um, it, it, very story driven um, during the entrance for, uh, Suzuki, Desperado, and Narita, and if you notice, they they were coming out to Narita's music, which I was a little surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Um, Narita was the last one to make his entrance, and while he was in the rampway, the foursome of House of Torture attacked him, beat him down, beat his ass, and kind of put him out of commission for a large majority of the match. So when the match did start, like he was just decommissioned, and you know, obviously, it was very much building to the eventual hot tag where he is recouped, recovered, and able to compete in the match. But for a large portion of the contest, it was a three-on-two affair. Yeah, definitely kind of building up that that sympathy for Narita, um, having Suzuki really in him for the majority of the match there, trying to fight off a lot of the half of torture. And then, like you mentioned, yeah, finally Narita um, was able to make his way down to the ramp. There was a spot there where he was on the, the apron waiting for the tag, and... Uh, Evil knocked him off, and they continued to get heat on Suzuki. But then finally, uh, they were able to get that hot tag in, and the, uh, these guys ran wild, came down where they ended up doing a uh, triple submission. Uh, Narita had um, Yujiro locked in a Cobra twist, while Suzuki had, um, I think he had Evil, and then Desperado had Sho in the um, Pinche Loco, or the Numero Dos uh, submission there. And so all three guys were into mission, and Yudro finally taps out, and we get new champs. Yeah, it, they, New Japan does that spot a lot during Ultiman tags where, you know, three of the guys will have submissions on, but something always happens that sort of breaks up the submission attempts. So I really wasn't anticipating that being the finish. Like, I, I liked the spot. It was happening, and then, like, I was like, oh, shit, Yudro tapped <laughs> Well, it's it like what a what a geek. <laughs> they did a great um, false finish before this, where Narita had him in the Cobra Twist. Um, Yujiro bit his way out, but then Narita got it back in, and Yujiro tapped out. 
and uh, the ref didn't see it. So it made you think, mm. oh, these guys are probably going to lose since, you know, we had the visual win there and you could probably set up a rematch. But they didn't do that. Instead, um, they were able to kind of overcome all the House of Torture shenanigans and able to get Yujiro back in that Cobra Twist. Uh, got the, the tap out win here. And we have new never six-man champs, Narita, Desperado, and Suzuki. Uh, post-match, Suzuki uh, grabbed the mic and said that they are strong style. Yeah, um, that was pretty cool. I mean, they've been building to this for a while. I, I don't recall what my prediction was last week. I kind of forgot, but uh, I'm glad to see these guys get the gold. Um, glad to have the titles off of House of Torture, which have kind of, I mean, they've really degraded the value of those titles while they've held them. And I know we're not, especially me, I know I'm not a fan of House of Torture, but this isn't just like sour grapes. I mean, this was a a title that was literally prestigious when it was held by Chaos, you know, a, a year and a half ago. And ever since it's been tied up with House of Torture, it's just kind of reverted back to what it was, which is basically the lowest title in the company. And maybe that's where it belongs. But uh, I think with these guys in hand, uh, it, it has a little bit more importance, a little bit more purpose. And it was kind of cool to see this long story play out where there was a lot of distrust, a lot of animosity, and eventually, slowly but surely, they find common ground and you know align themselves together. Um, and they are now called Strong Style, which, you know, I don't know. That name is very popular, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Uh, we had a lot of questions uh, about this matchup. Uh, first, from Reddit user Raising Falcons, how hard did they drop the ball on show? For a time, he really felt like the future of the juniors. Now, I'm glad when he doesn't appear on screen. Hmm. Um. Yeah, they have really dropped the ball extremely hard with show, and there's no, there's no soft or nice way to put it. I mean. This is a guy that was having fantastic, fantastic blowaway matches with the likes of Kushida, with the likes of Dragon Lee, with uh, Shingo. his really, really fantastic feud with Shingo Takagi, uh, El Phantasmo, just to name a few. And he, uh, and I haven't even listed them all. Like he was a guy that was like earmarked by most people. I mean, there were discussions like, "What is show ceiling?" Do we think he's going to stay a junior? Could he be an IWGP heavyweight champion someday? And there was a lot of debate about that because his performances were so high end and the fire and the, uh, you know, the um, charisma, it was all there. But it was sort of like, I don't know. He doesn't really have the height and the frame that they like, but he's definitely a guy that that could be something down the line. And ever since they broke up Rapongi 3K, the guy that we thought was going to be the Shawn Michaels to Yo's Janetti has been anything but. I mean, he's been an utter disaster. Literally one of the most boring and low-performing wrestlers in the company, especially in the junior division. And I know it's not all about match quality, although that is of a higher importance in New Japan than other companies, the emphasis that it's there it's not 
everything. But like, let's look at the facts. This is a guy that we thought was going to be the ace of the junior division, and he's done very little of note ever since aligning with House of Torture. He's kind of just their pin eater to some extent. Um, a guy that like the best thing that he has going for him is that he uses a wrench. Other than that, I mean, the matches are not good. The character is uninvestable. There, there's not much there, and. I am at, at this point, like wondering, have they damaged him too much? Is the is there? Can we turn back the clock? And is this salvage, salvageable or not? Yeah, you know, we, we've been saying this a couple of weeks now that you know, as a booker, you want to hide your talents, weaknesses, and emphasize their strengths. And like you mentioned, with show pre uh, heel turn. Uh, he had a lot of strengths. He was having all these great, hard-hitting, strong-style fights with Shingo. He was a highlight in the junior division when they would do Super Juniors and he was on a singles. Um, you know, he was looking like a star. You know, there were so many upsides to show as a, a singles competitor. And for some reason, um, the bookers here decided to, well, let's not emphasize his strengths anymore. Let's hide everything that got him over, that made him great, and let's have him, you know, like you mentioned, use this wrench, make all these goofy faces, not highlight, you know, all the cool things he can do in the ring and just have him have these shenanigan-filled matchups, and let's do that. And like you mentioned, yes, it's not all about uh, match quality, but at the same time, like, why are you going to hide this guy's strengths? He, he's a great wrestler. Like, you can get heat. You can be a heel and still have great matches. And I, I think people don't seem to get that. They think that, oh, to be a heel, you have to do all the shenanigans. You have to you have to do all this cheating and not have great matches. That's, that's the heat. That's being a heel. And, yeah, there are some heels like that, you know, some chicken uh, heels that, um, you know, they don't they, – they try to run away from the match and stuff like that. And that, that can work, but – you can be a heel and still have great matches. You can incorporate the cheating and still have incredible matches and get over. And, and that's not what they decided to do with show. And like you mentioned, you know, when Rapunky 3K, when when they were a team and, you know, there were people who were either like the show team or the yo team. But on this show, we called him show Michaels and we called yo, yo Nettie. Cause we thought that without a doubt that show was going to be the breakout guy that he was going to probably get maybe a never open weight title run and be a guy that really kind of flirted with that junior heavyweight line and could potentially be um, a guy that transitioned over in heavyweight. But now we don't know what's going to happen. You know, there was rumors a few months ago that he might potentially be looking at leaving the company because he was not happy with his uh, current push right now. Cause yeah, how's the torture chart out strong, but now they've been relegated to, the the opening of the card kind of opening feuds and it's not quite the push that he thought he was going to get when the initial heel turn happened yeah i guess uh tying your your ship to dick togo and evil maybe wasn't the right move you know (laughs) right (laughs) and i don't know how much of a decision he had in that but uh yeah it, it it has not gone well thus far yeah uh, Reddit user OKOK890 says, Strong style has gotten Narita, gotten Narita over great. What would you do to establish Umino? That's a great question. Um, I don't know that I have a, a firm answer on this. Uh, I mean, I feel like 
for most people, what gets them over, and I mean, there's lots of things that can get people over, but like to that top, tip top degree, it's really working at that highest level of New Japan's house style, you know? Um, Like, for instance, let me put it to you this way. There are people in the company, like, I'll just throw a name out there, Taichi, for example. I think Taichi is a guy that has proven over the past couple years that he has the goods to work on that level and be a performer that's every bit as good as the top-end guys. But he's not given the same opportunity to do that. That's not where he's slotted. And when he's giving, when when they give him a, a big main event match, he knocks it out of the park. But then he reverts back to where he was. And there's very few guys that are ever given the opportunity to go out there and and really work at that level. And it seems for the time being that they have plans for Umino to be one of those lofty guys, one of those few that are going to be able to work at the top end with your Ospreys and your Tanahashis and your Okadas and your Shingos and your Ishii's and stuff like that. And it's really going to fall on him to rise to that challenge and surpass what people expect of him. As far as a character is concerned, I think that he they're not doing him any favors having him unaligned at this point right now. I think that you do need to align him up with some group in some form or fashion. And I think he needs a foil that he can feud with. Because I think when someone is embroiled in a heated feud that's investable, that does wonders for somebody. And that's kind of what they need right now. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the booking of Narita has been done greatly. Um, and I think, like I was mentioning earlier, I think they've done a better job of setting up Narita to succeed than they have with Umino. And you you look at what they have done with Narita. They've had him feuding and facing guys that you kind of want to see him beat. Um, you know, they were able to get sympathy with him going against House of Torture. Like, nobody likes those guys, and so you, you want to see Narita beat those guys. Um, in, in a feud with, uh, with a guy like Ishii, yeah, Ishii's super over, but it's not to the point that where fans would want to choose Ishii over Narita, and it was somebody that fans were happy that Narita beat. And then he, he went on to feud with uh, Zack Sabre for the TV title. Zack, I know he's more of a, a tweener, but essentially Zack's more of a heel, and again, he was having to face his heel, and, and people were getting behind him. And so I think with Umino, they need to put him up against some heels and some people that you want to see him beat. Like I was mentioning with the Naito match, nobody in that building really wanted to see Uno beat Naito. They, they were all behind Naito. I feel right. like you need to put him against some some top heel or some other heels you know, that he can beat and people can get behind him because right now he's not over to the level that they, they want him to be to be a main event guy. So he needs to kind of build that momentum up first. By beating some guys, maybe he needs a feud for how to torture next and beat guys like Evil and Udro, beat these heels that nobody wants to see win and build some fan support that way. Well, in the immediate future, there's still a story down the line between him and Osprey that's on the table. Mm-hmm. There's been illusions, and I know we're getting a bit more into the fantasy booking territory here, but there's been 
history between him and Chris Jericho that was sort of exploited during the Forbidden Door. And I think that if the right opportunity was presented, they could do something there, uh, provided Jericho was working with the company again, which isn't outside the realm of possibilities. Um, obviously, his ties to John Moxley. I do think that it's important that they get him away from John Moxley so he can kind of find himself, define his own character and figure out his own way. But whether it was teaming together or even potentially feuding with one another, I think there's money down the line with him and John Moxley in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing with, um, uh, what's wrong with me? Why do I forget names? With Naito, um, this could be the start of something too that maybe isn't superheated, but is more like a generational thing. Like he, he has a goal to kind of go after now. He has a, a target and a guy that he needs to get past down the line. So I don't think it's a bad start in those respects, but um, I don't think that he should be cosplaying as Naito 2.0 or as Tanahashi 2.0 or, or anything like that. Like, he needs to inject a little bit more of his own creative personality into the character, and uh, they need to let that kind of shine through. He has a great point. I mean, he's kind of this mix right now of Naito, Tanahashi, and John Moxley. He kind of has all three of those characters kind of somehow in his presentation, and we really don't know who, who exactly is Shota Umino. Like, people see him, they, they think, you know, Naito. Then he wrestles, they think, Tanahashi. He carries around the Death Rider jacket, uses the Death Rider finisher. People think back to his relationship with Moxley. But nothing there is making you think just about Umino. And I think that's the missing key for him right now. I mean, and then not to mention the fact that his dad is the lead referee in the company, and that's bound to continue to be, like, a sticking point with his matches. And you wonder, is there, like, sort of a... I mean, they haven't leaned into it too heavily, but like a sort of nepotism angle, you know, for better or for worse. And I think that that is something you could play into one way or the other. I'm not saying go full bore, like, you know, triple A evil referee storyline. Don't go that way necessarily. But, you know, there is a potential angle. It's like he, you could say he got to where he is based on, you know, where his, you know, the influence of his family and the company, stuff like that. Right. That's that's all on the table. Or you could go the opposite way. He could be like a hangman Adam Page, someone who is fighting against all of these preconceived notions and he has to prove himself in spite of the the notion that he was gifted his position based on his family's affiliation with the company and he has to kind of work against that and that's a defining, you know, character characteristic. And these are all things that we we don't really we're sort of having to fill in the gaps more ourselves than what the company has provided us thus far, right? And then his last question says, "With Evil losing the six man belts, do you think he'll be pushed back up the car or stay where he is?" And a similar question from Emerald Burning Hammer: Will Evil ever be IWGP World Heavyweight Champion? I don't know. Um, I hope not, but. You know, I could be swayed on that. There was a time where Evil was having some pretty great matches, and I mean, I, I've come around on different performers. If if they were to switch up the presentation a, a bit, or even just the match structure, I could be convinced uh, of liking Evil again. I'm not, you know, someone that's hard nosed and just set in his ways. I'm open minded, but if it's 
a continuation of what he's been. He's screamed from day one ever since his initial turn as mid-card talent, and that's been the presentation, and that's the kind of responses that they've received, you know, all throughout. And I feel like they might want to still bring him back up the ranks, especially with the fallout of Jay White. We don't know what's going to happen with the Bullet Club. That kind of creates a power vacuum, and guys like him, as well as Kenta, ELP, and who knows who else might be looking to kind of fill that void that Jay is leaving behind in Japan, whether it's real or kayfabe. So I don't know. But if I had to bet, I would bet no. He never does hold the title again. Yeah, at the end of the day, I, I, I'm fine with never seeing him um, back in the title picture or be elevated. You know, if he's going to return back to maybe, you know, pre how to Torture Evil and he's going to wrestle that style, Maybe give him a, a never title run again, but I I'd be perfectly fine never seeing him. Give him a nice little never title run, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll be fine not seeing him in the main event picture or a title picture, especially if it's going to be you know, the same match layout and style with all the House of Torture shenanigans. Um, but again, he is a, a no gay dojo guy. Um, I could see them this being you know dropping the belts. This could be the time to yeah want to elevate them. You know, New Japan Cup is around the corner. Um, like you mentioned, Jay White leaving opens things up. So there is potential for them to do something with him, but I'd be perfectly happy if they did not. What about KOPW? Yeah, that, that that's great. That's a nice <laughs> little spot for him. Yeah. <laughs> now, what about the strong open weight title? Maybe maybe we get him over America a little bit. Is <laughs> yeah. that possible? I don't know. Uh, so uh, next question here from Dom Homie 101. Any thoughts on the new faction of Strong Style? I don't even know if we should go as far as to call them a formal faction. You know, to me right now, they're they're a team or a unit. And maybe that's a splitting hairs and not like the strongest distinction. But to me, I mean, there's a reason we, we haven't listed, say, like Stray Dog Army. We've never listed Stray Dog Army on our Faction of the Year awards for that very reason. It's just three guys. And we all know that to be a faction in Japan, you need four guys. Just, just, just four, four guys. guys. <laughs> yeah, at minimum, just four guys to be a faction. <laughs> you know, United Empire, they were not. I mean, even they were a faction because they had B. Priestley, you know. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think there's potential there um, for them to do something to, to create a faction. And, you know, in my eyes, it's not a faction until there's, until there's a logo. There's, there hasn't been a logo or shirts yet. So. We'll see what they do. They can grow with that strong style name and branding and do something cool with it. I do think, though, that this is still leading to a breakup and a Suzuki Narita program. Um, That's just my feelings on this. I don't think that this is a long-term, multi-year sort of thing. And that's sort of why I'm, like, more hesitant to call it a faction as opposed to, like, a team. You know, because right now there's a trio team that could band together if they add members then maybe i'll change my stance on that but personally i don't see them as a faction yeah uh next question here from dong bar one with umino and narita both returning from excursion and doing their thing now do you miss the forgotten young lion tetsuhiro yagi that started around the same time as them actually thought he was more talented than the both of them but he definitely had a lower ceiling in terms of being a top star 
where do you think his ceiling would be? Ooh, um, I don't know if I could answer that with any sort of certainty. I mean, one of the things that we've learned watching New Japan since the inception of this show for the last five or six years is you just can't tell what someone may or may not become from that Lion Dojo system. Um, you can take your best educated guess. I, I did like Yagi a lot. I thought that he was very athletic and had a lot of fire and passion. And, you know, we're always, anytime someone brings up his name, I'm going to pimp his two match series with Red Narita. <laughs> and if you guys haven't seen them, I still stand by the statement that they are, in fact, the greatest series of matches between two young lions. So much so that I'm pretty sure the first match of the month that we ever had for this show was Yagi versus Narita in December of 2017. So, yeah, I, I love Yagi. Uh, for whatever reason, he bowed out while he was still a young line. And for that reason, I couldn't tell you if he'd be a mid-carder, a jobber, if he'd be working WWE right now. I have no idea. Right, it's so hard to tell when they're in that young line stage. Of course, young people can make predictions, but you just never know. Um, some guys are slated to be top stars, and then, like I mentioned, kind of like Yagi, that they bow out or something kind of crazy happens, and we never see them again. So who knows where he would have ended up. But yeah, like you, yeah, was a fan of Yagi, and yeah, the Yagi Narita series was so great. I'll never forget, yeah, being in your apartment, just like marking out over uh, Yagi Narita on these uh, Lionsgate project shows. It was really good stuff. Um, and last question here from our friends over at the Super J cast. What, what will you change your podcast name to now that strong style is the intellectual property of Suzuki and Ren, and they'll probably beat you up if you keep using it. Um, so that's a great question. Um, one thing I did not like is that comment, that question got like a lot of likes and it got a lot of likes from people. It did get some likes from people that follow us and listen to the show, but there's a lot of people that don't follow us that were liking that shit. And I'm like, is this just some pettiness? Like, like y'all don't like us cause we're not J cast. Is, is that what's going on here? Or, you know, because we're called strong style. I don't really know. But uh, I got to tell you, Jeremy, um, there's a lot of podcasts out there called Strong Style that have not been going as long as we have. And I feel like have to be aware of who we are in the space, like not to toot our own horn, but we're not like unknown entities in the community. You know what I mean? Right. I think we've done a great job over the last, you know, what, five, six years now uh, establishing our name in, in the wrestling media space especially when it comes to covering New Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, let's be clear here. Strong Style is not a name that belongs to you and I. That is <laughs> something that you know has been uh, part of the marketing of New Japan Pro Wrestling going back to the early 70s. So, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, we have ownership of that that phraseology it, it, when we use it it is an homage to the company and the style of wrestling that we like which is new japan pro wrestling that being said we appropriated this shit first before anybody <laughs> else appropriated and so i'm going to give you a reading of all the other strong style podcasts that have popped up since we first created keeping it strong style in november of 2017 you got strong style live strong style media the Strong Style Podcast, Strong Style Story Podcast, Cajun Strong Style, 
Southern strong style. Speaking of strong style, strong style. Yeah, so there's there's quite a few strong style podcasts out there, and I just feel like if we got to change our shit, they got to change their shit too. <laughs> <laughs> also, did you? There's there's a, a podcast called Strong Style Podcast. I looked up. The only reason I looked them up is when I was doing this whole thing. I saw that Tony Khan appeared on their show. They got like 200 followers and Tony Khan was on their show. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, why, why did that happen? Yeah, that makes no sense. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure like One Nation Radio should reach out to Tony Khan at this point. I'm pretty sure they could get him on. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no plans of us uh, changing the, the strong style name in our podcast. Even if uh, New Japan wants to send us a, a cease and desist, <laughs> we'll keep going until, uh, you know, legal ramifications come up but yeah and we had other names we could always bust out don't you don't don't mind that you know we we got names on deck yeah we, we got multiple gimmicks ready we'll, we'll do a, a gimmick change i don't remember any of them but we got them <laughs> they are waiting in the wings also i mean if if suzuki really asked us we probably would change it because that man uh, messaged us in the early infancy of this show and told us to buy Ray Bans, and I went out and I bought Ray Bans. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and also I met Suzuki in New Orleans. Took a picture. That's right. Took, you took you took guys a, are boys. Yeah, well, I'm cool with Suzuki. Took a picture with him. Ren Narita. We've been supporting that man since day one on this podcast since he was a young lion. Um, so I think both those guys would be very happy with us continuing to use the strong style name in our podcast. Yeah, I I would I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on to the next match, big one here. We have a ton of questions about the loser leaves Japan match. So Hikaleo he defeated Switchblade Jay White twenty five minutes and eight seconds. Jay White was no longer welcomed in Japan. I thought that this match was truly truly masterful um, on the part of Jay White. And that doesn't diminish Hikaleo's role in the match whatsoever. I thought both guys were phenomenal. But uh, I thought this was like a really incredible job from Jay White just all throughout the match. Um, And I guess I say that because these two guys had another match almost a year ago in North America on New Japan Strong, and it was good, and it got time, um, but it was nowhere near the caliber and layout and structure and, and work rate of this match between Jay White and Hikaleo. And from the very get-go, I was just really enthralled with this match. And, uh, you know, Jay, everyone knows that Jay White is a fantastic performer and has a lot of great matches under his belt, but at the same time, he can be somewhat inconsistent when it comes to the tastes of, say, like you and I, like fans of higher work rate style wrestling um, who maybe don't dig as much of the stalling and the kind of long drawn out antics that he can employ at times. It, It gets a little long in the tooth. And luckily that stuff was sort of kept to a minimum here, but the drama was, super high in this match. There was a lot of great callbacks, a lot of great character work mixed in 
with high octane action and a lot of physicality between these guys. And I think the stakes really helped the match quite a bit as well. Plus the crowd, as we mentioned at the start of the show was super hot and very invested and were biting on almost everything. It was just a perfect uh, storm of different, you know, things kind of combining all together to create a really, really, really fantastic match. I, I wanted to reach out to different group chats, including yourself, but I didn't want to spoil anything for anybody <laughs> because I know that this was a, a really anticipated match for a lot of people. And I didn't even want to like create the notion that I was presenting a spoiler because, you know, you just say the, the match and people are like, Oh damn it. You're giving away. And it's like, I, I, I don't want to give anything away, but this match was fantastic. And I was just drawn in the whole time. I, I really found it difficult to take my eyes off the match. I was not looking at my phone one iota. Yeah, this was a really good matchup. And I thought I saw a spoiler going to this match. So I was watching this whole match thinking that Jay White was going to win based on something I thought I saw. Um, so, yeah, definitely a little surprise there, yeah, when uh, Hikaleo pulled it out. And I thought Jay did a really good job here of getting the heat on Hikaleo. You know, sometimes it could, it could be difficult to get the heat on somebody that's bigger than you. Um, but I thought Jay did a really good job, you know, working over uh, the leg of Hikaleo, really chopping him down, uh, using the barricades on the outside, and just kind of really making Hikaleo have to fire up and, you know, bring something out of him that we haven't really seen out of Hikaleo and there's a spot in the match where, you know, he rips off Hikaleo's vest and he's, you know, throwing yeah. the, the two sweet chops and really just, you know, getting Hikaleo down to, you know, his very last uh, level there. And then Hikaleo just having to fire back and come back and just unleashing these super loud, heavy chops to, to Jay White and just kind of battering Jay and fighting back in that way. I thought Hikaleo... Uh, looked really good here. Uh, I think this is, you know, like you mentioned at the match last year, I think this match was definitely better than that matchup here. I think Hikaleo has improved with his selling, just kind of his ring awareness, and um, just his kind of fighting, tying into that that, that baby face sympathy um, as, as a big guy. It's not it's always easy to do. I thought he did a good job here. And, uh, you know, yeah, he was able to uh, put Jay White away with the, the big choke slam at the end there. Yeah, and I mean, there's even a lot of bull club tropes like low blows, ref bumps, chair usage. But in the context of this match, I just felt like because of the desperation that, you know, it, it's Jay White and he's going to go to his bag of tricks and use everything that's that he's known to to utilize to win this contest, to stay in Japan, whatever that might mean, which we're still not quite sure. Um, I thought that it worked really well here, just kind of showing the desperation. And then the idea that like Hikaleo has studied under this guy, he's learned from him. He's sat under his tutelage and kind of knows his whole entire game plan. Plus the physical advantages that he has just being this giant and this mammoth and all throughout the early parts of the match where Jay was getting heat on him and attacking the leg and, you know, avoiding the big major strikes and then down the stretch where like time and effort started to catch up in it. And then Hikaleo really started laying in his own strikes and his suplexes and everything. Like it was all, Oh, and then 
there was a bunch of moves that Jay White was able to bust out on him that I didn't think he'd be able to, like, the Saito suplex and the Kiwi oh Crusher. Oh, my gosh, that Saito that he did. Like, Hikaleo was, like, going for something, a clothesline or something, and then he turned into a Saito. It looked so nasty. Um, yeah. He was able to hit the Blade Runner, uh, but he wasn't able to get the cover right away. Um, so for I thought it was going to be over right there when he hit the Blade Runner, but, yeah, he wasn't able to capitalize on it and get the cover there. I think once the match started and the way it was laid out, I just started to believe for whatever reason, I don't know what the tell was. I just kind of felt like Jay was leaving. It reminded me a lot of like when Prince Devitt was leaving and I guess we can get into it here in a moment, but the whole entire match, just whether this is kayfabe or not, or whether it's a shoot, it just did feel like a send off match for Jay white. And this felt like uh, a really fitting final, if it is his last match in, in New Japan for the time being, a really fitting send-off match for him. I, I was very impressed. I think that some of the scores on and grades I've seen online are a bit lower than I am here. I'm, like, close to four and a quarter. I was just very, very, uh, very impressed here. Nice. I think I'm more like a 3.75, um, but thought it was, still thought it was a really good matchup to me i would have shaved a few more minutes off of it but overall i thought it was very good accomplish what they were trying to do get hikaleo over send jay white out uh post match we did see uh jay white give a, a fist bump to tanahashi who was on commentary for uh the evening after his matchup um so yeah interesting stuff there and so tons of questions here so let's run through these uh deaf triangle 720 who do you think will be the next Bullet Club leader? Should it be someone already in the group or someone new? That's a great question. I mean, um, to me, if it is someone in the group, the only three names, and I don't know, Jeremy, you could weigh in. The three names that I'm thinking make the most sense are Evil, El Fantasmo, or Kenta. But right now, not any one of those names feel strong enough to be the leader. Is there anyone that I'm not thinking of? Because I know there's a lot of members in this group. No, I would say those are probably the only ones right now that I would say that could really step up and be the leader. Because, I mean, other guys, I mean, it's like Ishimori, he's, not, he's a junior. He's not going to lead. You know, Yujiro, not show. Bad Luck Fale, Chase Owens. Like, none of those guys are going to uh, become the leader. So, yeah, I think it's really down between Evil, ELP, and Kenta. Like you mentioned, all those guys, they're they're coming off of losses. None of them really feel hot right now. I mean, ELP would be the favorite for me in my eyes as a guy who could do it, but it doesn't seem like they're quite there with him yet. So maybe they do, you know, bring somebody new in to uh, take the mantle. That's the other thing I thought of is it could be an outsider, and it could be someone outside of the group who's in New Japan already. And... You know, you could speculate wildly. I, I mean, I even went as far as to think, what if, uh, what if like Tamatonga takes back over and the whole thing was a swerve and he turns or like Hikaleo or something? I don't know. Um, or something we don't see coming, like an Okada or, or a Tanahashi or something crazy. Yeah. But th- there are names on the outside that potentially you could bring in and fit that, that role. But I mean, those are big shoes to fill, considering the lineage, the fact that you got Prince Devitt, then AJ Styles, then Kenny Omega, then Jay White. I mean, I don't know. Um, I think ELP, to me, 
is the guy that makes the most sense, but he is, and we'll get to it here in a moment, but he is coming off of a pretty big loss on a major show to Tamatonga. But then again, Kenny Omega did come off of a pretty big loss the night before he took over the, you know, he lost to Kushida in, in the Dome before he, you know, usurped authority and, and ousted AJ Styles from the group. At the same time, as much as I do like ELP at this point, he doesn't feel as hot to me as the way Kenny Omega felt at, you know, in 2015 or 2016. Right. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. Um, okay. Okay. 890 asks, what do you think of Hikaleo in the J match? It was an impressive performance, but he had the perfect opponent. Do you think he can keep up the momentum and prove he deserved to be the guy to write J off? I, I don't know. Um, it, it, he's still green. But he has made a lot of improvements. I've been very impressed with him. And uh, I think that he has enough tools at this point to, even if he doesn't end up being like the greatest worker that there ever was, I think he's light years beyond a lot of other men, his similar stature and frame and size. And I think that they can make money with him and and have good matches, tell good stories. Uh, And I think that, if he's continue, if they continue to put him in the ring with the right workers, then it's nothing but a, a net positive for him and his growth and his learning. Yeah, there's a lot uh, upside with Hikaleo. I think he has a lot of strengths, and if he, again, if they can continue to kind of book to those strengths, put like you mentioned, put him in there with the right guys, give him the right stories. I think he's definitely a guy they can make money with. I don't know if he'll be an IWGP World Champion. I think he's a guy that you can put one of the secondary titles on and, and do something with. Um, okay, okay, 890 also asks, favorite Jay White match? Oh, uh, I mean, that's simple. The G1 final in 2019, him and Kota Ibushi, I think it's, uh, I thought that that was the match of the year in 2019. I think it's one of the greatest matches in New Japan history, and a lot of people didn't necessarily agree with me, but I I still feel like if you go back and watch that match, it. It's just one of the best story slash work rate matches ever. Like, it's the perfect blend between Jay White style and Kota Ibushi style, and yeah, it's perfect. It's to me that's a five star classic. Yeah, that match is incredible, and another one that's one of my favorites uh, that we were there live for was the the Madison Square Garden match with um, Okada. Also, I think the Ibushi match is, is better from a bell to bell, but I just think the kind of build up to that Okada J match and. Um, just the moment that that created, I thought was a, a pretty cool uh, main event there for for Jay White. Uh, next set of questions here from Don Homie One Hundred One. Any thoughts on the interaction between Jay White and Hiroshi Tanahashi after the Loser Leaves Japan match? Is there more to it, or is it just a nothing burger? It could hypothetically just be the breaking down of the Jay White character as he's leaving the company and letting down that heel persona to kind of let in some of the real um, emotions of his exit from the company and some of the real personal relations that he has with these various different, you know, characters and stuff. It also could be hypothetically, again, we don't know what loser leaves Japan actually means. Um, I see it as going personally one of four ways. He could be leaving the company 
and heading to either one of two places, either AEW or WWE. I don't see anywhere else that would make any sense for him to go and, and, and you know, be a member of. The other two options would be Loser Leaves Japan just simply means going to America and working in America and for whatever, you know, contracted amount of time, he's not going to be working New Japan domestic shows, right? Mm -hmm. And that would open up the door for him to do indies, work Impact again, maybe work AEW. Any company that's not in Japan that they're affiliated with, and then he could bolster hypothetically the new Japan strong brand, you know, this new pay-per-view brand that they have going here in the States, he could be a main eventer or highlight member of that group. The other option, and this is the fourth and final one, maybe this is just a convoluted and, and interesting way for them to turn him babyface and even potentially do the, the, the long myth, you know, myth, myth, I don't know what the word is, but uh, you know, sensationalized bullet club civil war storyline and maybe he maintains his leadership quote unquote while he's in america and slowly is turning heel while at the same time you have one of these guys that we've discussed be over here domestically causing a rift and we saw something similar to that happen during evil's initial run at the top of of the card and maybe that could be a way for him to turn babyface and even potentially return to the company. And for anyone that's wondering to themselves, they're like, well, why go through all the trouble to do a loser leaves Japan match? Why go through all the trouble to put a stipulation in place? This is not Paul Heyman's ECW in 1995. This is not <laughs> AEW where they will stick to a stipulation to a fault. This is New Japan Pro Wrestling where, you know, a couple of years ago we had a stipulation match. Tenzon can't do mongolian chops well this guy's doing mongolian chops in every single match since he lost that <laughs> match so you can't tell me that if he is still contracted with the company that he's never going to return to japan i don't know if i believe that that's what's happening but they could be turning him babyface, and if they are that might be this might be a really fantastic storyline that we're just seeing the the genesis of basically Right, and you could have a thing where eventually, you know, he builds this respect with Tanahashi, and Tanahashi is the one that lobbies to the IWGP or whoever it is to to bring him back into the country, and then he joins Hontai, and he's, you know, a top bait-based guy. So, yeah, that is definitely an angle for it to go into, but, I don't know, just kind of based off of what I'm seeing, to me, it kind of feels like he's kind of wrapping up and, the Eddie Kingston match will be his last New Japan match. He'll he'll do the honors there, and then he'll be on his way to either uh, AEW or WWE. I think Fightful came out today and saying that you know WWE officials have been saying that they're still interested in him. So uh, and his contract should be up, I think before before WrestleMania. So there is potential there for him to to make a, a big you know Cody like debut at WrestleMania and maybe do some kind of angle there to kick off his WWE run, or maybe he does end up going to AEW, which has a partnership with New Japan, and he could still have some kind of New Japan uh, involvement working with AEW. Yeah, that's what I feel too. Um, also asked of Jay's future in question, what does the future hold for Bullet Club? Where do Bullet Club go from here, and who will Gato give his service to next? 
it does kind of feel like as as good as the whole breakup with chaos as as good as that story was and the payoff that we got like in kayfabe gato's character is kind of a hoe like he turned it he traded in kazushka okada who is all these years later still on top still the top (laughs) champion and still the ace of the company still the rainmaker and you know put put all his chips on jay white who is now not not able to work in japan and in kayfabe Jay White is an idiot because no one told him he needed to do a loser leaves Japan match. Right. He wasn't even challenged to this match. He offered the match <laughs> to Hikaleo. <laughs> so he kind of fucked himself in that regard. But uh, yeah, as far as Bull Club, I mean, you know, I, I've said it for a long time. I think Bull Club's way too long in the tooth. I think that they're due for extinction i think that they should just be put to pasture at this point it's been almost what it has been a decade of bullet club and the bullet club today is not the bullet club of 2015 2016 it just it's not yeah but they sell a lot of shirts do a lot of merch and they are not wanting to you know uh kill that brand and that um you know that uh what is it called intellectual property they right don't want it to go away you got bad luck fale over in uh you know new zealand australia you know adding people to bull club every day it seems like now over there uh caveman ug and jack bonds all the guys over there so wait is caveman ug part of bull club too i think that's what i saw on twitter that he uh turned heel and joined uh the rogue army bull club well i know liber lucci joined i didn't know that caveman Ugg. that makes sense though because he lost okay we, we won't we won't get into the tamashi talk but yeah that's interesting um so yeah it definitely seems like there's no plan for them to end bull club even though they should so i think definitely there's going to probably be some kind of new leader whether that is elp kenta evil or somebody um that is unaffiliated right now or somebody that's going to turn from their current faction um, there's a lot of options there. I mean, a lot of the LA Dojo guys, they don't really have uh, a spot that, right now. Um, that's the other thing I was thinking. What if they decided to go with an LA Dojo guy? But And I love those guys. I, I do. I think they're fantastic, and I think they're underutilized, and we're going to complain about them not being in the New Japan Cup. But do you see any of them fitting the mold of Bullet Club leader? I feel like the closest Maybe one would- Gabe Kid. Yeah, maybe Gabe Kidd. I don't know. To me, right now, the only person on the roster that makes sense from an aesthetic and age and skill perspective is El Fantasmo. He's the only guy that I I feel like fits that, you know, that mold that's kind of been put in front of him. And maybe they buck the trend and they go a different way, you know, but he just is very reminiscent of what we've, had for the past decade in a bullet club leader and i can't think of a name outside of new japan i mean i i was having this discussion with rich Lada today and he was like well if they did go with an outside hire who would it even be right like who who's out there and i couldn't think of a good name and i'm sure we're probably forgetting someone but i couldn't think of anyone i don't know if you you have anyone in mind yeah nothing outside of japan is coming to my mind i just think about what about uh tom lawler i know team filthy and bull club were kind of working together 
towards the end of uh, New Japan Strong. Uh, so you could maybe have Team Filthy kind of merge in the Bullet Club and uh, Tom take over. Possibly. I mean, I don't know. At, at this point, like, I guess I'm sort of, like, game for whatever. Like, you guys <laughs> want to throw Liebert Lucci in the group? Fantastic. <laughs> like, you know, if, if Josh Alexander took over the, the group, like, sure, why not? I don't care. <laughs> you guys want to add Bully Ray? Let's do it. I don't care. <laughs> oh man, no, I, I don't don't need to see Bully Ray in uh, New Japan. Yeah, uh, but that's that's where I'm at with Bull Club. Yeah. Uh, I also asked with Jay White's NJPW future in question, what will be his legacy in NJPW? How would his run in the New Japan be remembered? Where does he rank among the all-time greats in New Japan? What are your favorite Jay White matches and moments in New Japan? Wow, a pretty loaded question. I mean, I think his legacy is probably he has to be considered the most successful gaijin wrestler to ever come out of the Noge Dojo. Mm-hmm. And on a kayfabe perspective, I don't think that there is any gaijin wrestler that has accomplished as much Acolytes wise in kayfabe as he has, including Kenny Omega. Although Kenny Omega does, you know, obviously had a top guy run that is probably more meaningful than Jay White and also won a G1. So, like, if we're talking real, like, real perspective, like, perception, he obviously was at the top in, in a greater capacity. But just strictly speaking of kayfabe, like, awards and, and wins. I don't think anyone held as many titles as Jay White did. That was a Gaijin performer ever. So, uh, you know, that's pretty big. Yeah, obviously, yeah, Jay had a lot of uh, kayfabe, non-kayfabe accomplishments. Um, very great resume, like you said. Yeah, definitely most successful uh, foreigner to come out of the, the Nogate Dojo. I think kind of a big, you know, thing for the New Zealand um, area there and kind of wrestlers coming out of that area. And so, yeah, I think he's going to be uh, remembered well. I know he's a very kind of polarizing guy when it comes to his in-ring work, and I'm sure there's going to be several people who are happy that he's gone. Um, but you cannot doubt, you cannot, you know, neglect. Deny. Yeah, that's what, yeah you cannot deny uh, the work that he's done in New Japan, some of the great matches and moments that he's had, some of the stuff that we've mentioned already, you know, the Ibushi match, the Yokata matches. Um, like he, he had a, a pretty great run. Yeah, and since we've been on a trend of admitting our faults, we, especially me, have said many times on the show that he's going to win a G1. It's just a matter of time. It's There's no doubt about it. Well, if he leaves the company and he never won a G1, <laughs> I, guess it, I guess that's not happening. Um, as far as favorite moments, um, him turning on the bull club has to be up there for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think him when, uh, turning on Kenny at first before joining uh, joining Chaos first. That was a great moment. Uh, the moment where he was the world champion and he was standing in the middle of the ring and he had all the babyface, uh, you know, challengers like Okada, Tanahashi, and Goto and Abushi on the outside. That was kind of a memorable one. Um, when he defeated, when he went on that run where he defeated Okada in 15 minutes in the dome and then turned around and beat, uh, Tanahashi and Osaka for the 
heavyweight title a month later, that was like probably peak of his entire career. Um, those are some of the things that I remember the most about Jay White's run. Yeah. And I think, yeah, all those moments. And I think that some of the, his catchphrases, uh, I think will be pretty memorable and just his promos. He had a really good, um, promos, post-match in ring promos, uh, bro, even this one, um, while there's definitely fans that are just way more into the Jay White character than I am, and I, I'm a fan, but I'm just I'm not a super fan, and there's some <laughs> there's some super fans out there. Um, I, I saw a lot of hype for this post match promo, and I was watching it, and I thought it was good, a little lo- like too long, and maybe indulgent. And at first, I was like, but it, I kind of had to give him that leeway because he probably is leaving the company, and it, it probably is real emotions mixed in with his character work. But then when he started cutting the promo in Japanese and he started saying the same words that he had said before he left for excursion, basically saying like new Japan is my family. This ring is my home. The new Japan fans are my family. And basically like letting people see the baby face version of him. That got to me like a little bit. Like I was like, <laughs> hold it in a little bit. Like, and it felt very real and very genuine. And like, I'm like, if this is a storyline, they are doing a damn good job convincing me it's not because this felt real. And I, yeah, it was good. Yeah. Uh, also, that the the meltdown um, promo uh, that he had after Wrestle Kingdom a couple years ago that like had the whole world talking. Yeah, it's it's Jamie, not Jay, talking. Yeah, that's that's an incredible promo. Yeah. His last question, what's next for Hikaleo? Where does he go from here? Thoughts on Hikaleo not being a part of the New Japan Cup tournament? I don't know what's next for Hikaleo because, to me, being in the New Japan Cup is what needs to naturally be next after capitalizing off this win. And the fact he's not in the New Japan Cup is mind-boggling. I don't understand it at all unless he's injured or something crazy like that. Yeah, the, uh, the only thing I can think of is maybe they just don't want to beat him. Like beat he's, him. He's not going to win the New Japan Cup, and they don't want him to lose, so let's keep him out of it to protect him. Right, that's fine, but like, there are ways to beat a guy without actually beating him, and you could also make him look extremely strong and have a ton of momentum throughout the tournament by going on a run. I felt I, I just feel like it would be beneficial for him to work with different guys. I mean... I don't see how it is benefiting him keeping him out of the tournament. You know what I mean? Like, what's he going to do during this time frame? You're not – now he's going to be cold coming off of the biggest win of his career. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, same here. Uh, Next question here from Heavenly Halbert. Who will Gato manage next? Dick Togo. (laughs) And the booking committee. (laughs) I don't know, and I feel like that's the thing. Like, we, there's um, there's a lot of room, and we've been saying this kind of is the running theme all year that there's room for them to do new creative things that we're not anticipating. So I don't know what happens to Gato next, but I I can't imagine he's going to want to, from a character perspective, not be aligned with the with a player. Right. I'm assuming if he's still going to be in Bull Club, he will just manage whoever the new leader is. Uh, MJ does PR is Jay White an all time great? That's a loaded question. I don't know what you mean by all time great. Um, 
do I think he's an all-time great, like in terms of like New Japan Pro Wrestling? Um, I would say yeah, but like, and in certain respects, yes. Like as a performer, yes. But like, how great is great? Like, what? How great are we going here? <laughs> right. Like, are you trying to say he's you know Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels? I'll say this, like, I think he has most of the tools that make a great wrestler. You know, he's a great promo, great look, great worker, really believable, sticks to his character. There's a lot there. But at the same time, um, do I think that he will go down as one of the greatest wrestlers to ever live? Um, I would say no. And... Maybe I sound callous in saying that while the guy's leaving the company, but I, I have to be kind of genuine here. Like I don't see him as being that level. And I'm sure there's people that are probably listening that are pulling their hair out, but I do think there's levels to the game and the level of like tip top tier. I mean, I don't know when we say all time. Great. Like, do I think he has a, do I think he has a resume that could potentially be hall of fame quality? Yeah, I do. So I'm not like, I think he's up there, but like, do I think he's the same like level of like, I don't know right now. Do I think he's the same level as like say a macho man, Randy Savage or a Mitsuhara Mizawa or something like that or Kobashi? Like, no, I don't see him being there right now. Then again, he's still young and he accomplished a lot in a very short amount of time in New Japan and who knows what is in front of him, you know, over in America if he does go to another company. Yeah, he's still writing his career. There's still plenty for him to do to accomplish in America. So yeah, either joining AEW or WWE that it's only going to I think bolster his resume and he still has several more years to show how great he is. And we still haven't seen, you know, the, the Bay face run, which when, when he was a Bay face um, as, as a young lion, he had some really exciting matchups in ring of honor. So if he could get a Bay face run, I think that could help, you know, kind of bolster his resume and kind of prove how great he is. And of course, you know, drawing in America and becoming a, you know, a cable television star, I think could help that. Uh, next question here from Dragon Master Adam, kind of similar to what's next for Bullet Club. Was sure that ELP would win the open weight title if Jay lost. Pretty sure ELP is the guy to lead the Bullet Club without Jay in Japan. So how do you build him back up? And I think we'll save that for when we talk about the, the Never Title match coming up here. Uh, Rambo and Slam Pig with Jay White seemingly out. Who will take his spot as a top Gaijin heel? Osprey seems obvious, but it looks like they are running a babyface-ish story where he has... To fight from behind and overcome a heel position, Kenny Omega does he still slot there anyway? I think he's still slotted as a as a heel. In fact, I feel like he's kind of gaining a bit of a vengeful mean streak through this loss. He nothing that's uh, occurred post loss to Kenny indicates to me that they're baby facing him in any way. Right, I think there's definitely you know fan sympathy for him and and wanting to see him win, but. So far, he's still been very cocky and arrogant, even in this feud of just four guys, you know, calling them all losers and kind of burying Tai Chi and kind of looking down on Tai Chi um, in, in that whole kind of build and feud there. So it seems like he's still kind of very arrogant, prick, heelish. He hasn't really shown any signs of wanting to be, you know, endearing to the fans yet. 
Um, then last question here from Barry Walsh. Any possibility Jay goes to AEW and feuds with Kenny Omega over the U.S. belt? And does it mean it's hell hostage a la Moxley again, if so? Anything is possible, but I will tell you this. If I was Jay White, there's a lot to kind of consider. There's pros and negatives on both sides, but at this point, if I was him, I would go to WWE. And there's probably people who don't want to hear that. I love AEW, but if I was him, I would look at how AEW has uh, handled a lot of their imports over the past year. I would look at the landscape, and I don't know that if right now is the the right time to go to an AEW. I wouldn't be convinced if I was him that they have shown that they have the capacity to push me and utilize me to the way that I think I should be used from a creative perspective. Whereas WWE has shown, at least in the immediate sense, a willingness to highlight and utilize Cody Rhodes on a major level. Now, obviously there's outliers like Jonah (laughs) didn't even get to the Royal Rumble, (laughs) but I don't think, but you know, Jay White's not Jonah. Jay White's Jay White. He's a, a, a made man and a big star. And I feel like there would be ready made matches for him. The moment he came into the company, the thing with WWE is, you know, you're going to get fucked eventually. (laughs) You just don't know when, you right. know, when is it going to happen? But um, I think he's a guy that's tailor-made for WWE. I think his look, his build, his style of wrestling, everything about him has always screamed to me that he's a Vince and a Triple H guy. And I think that I don't know that Tony Khan is that enamored with him, to be honest with you. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, and I mean, AEW, they have a very bloated roster right now. You have guys literally scratching and clawing just to get, you know, a few minutes of TV time. There's only so many guys that can push at one time. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't seem like, yeah, TK's a huge, you know, switchblade mark. Um, So I'm not sure that if he goes to AEW that he's going to get this huge run. I mean, he could. um, But I definitely, it seems like WWE would be the better option. I mean, they got... Uh, five hours of television time uh, weekly. I mean, there, there's definitely they're looking for stars. They're looking for new people to push. Right now, Triple H running creative. I think that Jay would be utilized very well there. Obviously, there's the Bull Club connection. He could do stuff with AJ Styles and, and Galton Anderson and do something with Cody and then kind of springboard from there. Um, so I think that probably be the, the best bet for him. But we'll see what uh, Jay ends up doing. So that takes us to the semi-main event of the evening, the never open weight title match, like we've uh, mentioned earlier. Tamatonga retained the title, defeats El Fantasmo, twenty-seven minutes and seven seconds. I liked this match. Um, I didn't like it, say quite as much as the match we just discussed, but um, I thought it was still very, very good. Um, ELP and Tamatanga, this was a match where last week I kind of noted several times that they did a good job building up the heat and the animosity between these two guys. And, you know, usually it's not uncommon to see ELP come out and do a lot of different shtick and shenanigans and have, you know, comedy spots. And that stuff was completely missing from this match. They Instead, they went out there and they worked a New Japan-style main event. 
Um, I felt like 27 minutes, they got a good amount of time, actually a very generous amount of time, but I felt like that might've been too much for the show, especially since the show was a little bit long. Um, the match to me might've been a little bit better if it was a little bit tighter, a little bit more compact, but they, they still went out there and had a really great effort. A lot of back and forth action, very physical. And, um, there was quite a few times going down the stretch where I sort of thought ELP beat Tamatanga and I was kind of biting on some of those near falls. Yeah, there's a lot of great near falls in the match. Um, good layout to the match. Uh, ELP was working on uh, the right hand and arm of Tamatanga, which he uses to utilize a gun stun. So you know, on the outside, got the table stomped on his arm on the table and was working over um, you know the arm and hand throughout the matchup there. But then on the other end, Tamatanga... Um, was attacking the leg, uh, the sudden death super kick leg of El Phantasmo, trying to slow him down there. Of course, ELP had a lot of great high flying maneuvers there, so trying to slow him down, stop him from doing the super kick and some of his high flying stuff. So, really good back and forth, lots of ton of great spots. ELP hitting the you know the Asai moonsault, uh, plancha, and then there were just so many, like you mentioned, so many great um, near falls there. Um, there was a a sudden death spot. Where I thought that ELP got it, but Tamatanga kicked out. Uh, there's a spot where ELP kicked out of the gun stun. Um, so they were just really giving each other a lot, kicking out of each other's finishers, a, a lot of really um, back and forth, a lot of really cool reversals and near falls. And then that led to the, the end there where uh, ELP is going for a, another sudden death, but it's blocked. Uh, Tama flips ELP into a gun stun. Uh, and that's where Phantasma kicks out, and then he picks him up. He looks to the heavens, and he does a twisting J-Driller and gets the win there. I did want to say, I'm a big mark for anytime there's focused work on a hand in a match. I don't know why. I just think that that shit rules. Some of my favorite matches involve concerted effort to attack somebody's hand like for instance um brock lesnar versus the undertaker the hell in a cell match where undertaker yeah. the cast or uh bailey versus sasha from brooklyn that match had a lot of uh handwork there's the famous takata match uh versus i believe it's hiroshi hase i forget but it's from new japan in the 80s and it's called the hand match because it's literally focused on a broken hand and they did really great work in the beginning. I was digging it and digging it. And then in the last like 10 minutes, it just didn't mean anything. It literally led to nothing. And it's sort of like, that's always a big gripe of mine. It's like, if you're going to focus on a body part, it should have some, maybe not, like, I'm not saying like it needs to have the most uh, importance, but it literally had no bearing whatsoever. And they spent a lot of time and effort on it. But yeah, I did like a lot of the stuff down the stretch. Um, the gun stun into the CR2 was raw. Mm-hmm. Um, when ELP kicked out of the gun stun, I couldn't believe that he kicked out of that. Like that, that like blew my mind. And then, yeah, like you mentioned that twisting um, J driller, like I'd never seen anyone hit that twisting like that. So that kind of like, I was blown away by that. So I really did like the finish. And I mean, the positives here, these guys were really great and competent in a big style main event. And, you know, we got two new faces, two guys that have been elevated to a new stature and they're very believable and investable at this point. Um, and we're a far cry away from 
the never where the never title was four or five months ago under Carl Anderson. So it, it's all positives at this point right now. Yeah. I had a question here from OK, OK, 890. What's going to happen to Bull Club with Tana wanting a team of Kenta and ELP coming up short in a Bay Facious performance? Could Bull Club actually be coming to an end? And we had also that question previously kind of asking about what's next for ELP and him potentially being the leader, even though having this big loss. Um, you know, it's not impossible that even though he took a loss that he couldn't still wind up being the leader. I think the closest thing is like, uh, Kenny would probably be the closest comparison because, uh, Prince Devitt was like a junior that was already the top, top, like tip top junior. And he was already beating heavyweights and he was sort of like a force to be reckoned with in the heavyweight division. And AJ Styles was already world champion day one in his time with new Japan. But like, uh, Kenny was very, a lot closer to where ELP is to where he had to make the transition. He had to rise up the ranks, win his first title and kind of change from a goofball comedy esque type character to becoming the best bout machine and sort of change his persona and ELP sort of in a similar situation where if he did become the, the leader of the bull club, it wouldn't be a direct overnight. He's the top guy. It would be a progressive thing like it was for Kenny and probably whatever first big main event they gave him after he took over would be the real test. Yeah, um, I, I think that ELP, like we mentioned earlier, would be a great leader for Bullet Club. And like you mentioned, yeah, very close parallels there to Kenny Omega. And also there's a lot they could do with ELP that could lead to him becoming the leader. I think a lot of people are expecting to see some kind of angle with Jay potentially getting kicked out of Bullet Club, come battle in the Valley, uh, and that could set up potentially ELP doing that. So... Lots of options there on how they can um, get the leadership turned over to ELP. So now let's uh, move on now to the, the main event of the evening. We had the IWGP World Heavyweight title on the line. The champion, the Rainmaker, Kazuchika Okada, successfully defends his title and defeats Shingo Takagi 32 minutes and 7 seconds. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Jeremy, I'm nothing if not a consistent man. Okay. <laughs> and it's been no secret. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time that I, for whatever reason, just don't connect with Shingo versus Okada matches. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the disconnect is. I understand that I am the outlier here, but I'm seeing on cage match, this has a 9.51. People are saying that it's a serious match that you're contender. And if you have it above, you know, Will and uh, Osp or Will and Kenny, you know, you wouldn't be mistaken necessarily, or that wouldn't be too egregious. I just don't see it that way. Um, I thought the match was objectively. Great. In fact, I would go as far as to say this might be the best Okada Shingo match since their first match in the G1 several years ago. Um, and I, I do think the crowd helped a lot. The last five minutes of the match really had me going. And it's it, that was where the crowd was like 
probably like an MVP contender of the evening where they were just living and breathing with everything that was going on between these guys and the, the near falls and the kickouts and, you know, the extravagant counter sequences that were known to get from Okada down a, a final stretch. But uh, I'm just not as high on this match overall as everybody else is. I know some people are, at, you know, five stars, and four and three quarters. I think I would probably have to like begrudgedly give it like a four and a half, but I'm kind of closer to like, I thought it was a four and a quarter match with like a near five star finish mm. is the way that I personally felt about it. I thought it was a little bit slow in the beginning. The only thing, one reason I do know it had to be very, very good is because it was a 32-minute match, and it definitely didn't feel like a 32-minute match. Like, it, it kept a really it, it, brisk... It blew by. Yeah, it blew by. It had a, a brisk pace. But I just, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but when these... I think, too, there was a lot of use of the the money clip, and, like, it just takes me out of these matches when, when these guys do their money clip spots, but... Great match. <laughs> Well, I, I'm also consistent with these two. I, I love the Shingo Okada series. I'm a 4.75 on this one. Um, I don't think it's above uh, Kenny and Osprey. Uh, I don't think anything's beating Kenny and Osprey, but I definitely think this is something that will be uh, what could end up on the ballot this year for uh, a match of the year. And it was just an epic main event. And I think the one thing that was missing from their matches that they were finally able to get was a cheering crowd. And this crowd was definitely back and forth. Uh, it was it was fifty fifty. Crowd were chanting for Takagi. They were chanting for Okada, and I think that really elevated this match to the next level. Um, you know, I don't mind the money clip spots in this match because it plays back to the very first match where Okada made Shingo pass out from the money clip, and so that's kind of been a, a uh, narrative that's been carried on through all their matches where Okada continues to try to do that, pass him out with the money clip, and Shingo having to continuously fight out of it. Um, so that was cool spots there. Then there's some really big spots here, and I, I know that, you know, with Okada just winning the belt and Shingo being KOPW, the chances of Shingo winning were very, very slim, but there were still some right. really great uh, near falls here. Um, you know, Shingo reversing a Rainmaker into a Rainmaker of his own. Uh, hitting the last of the dragon, which a ton of people don't really kick out of. Um, There's a lot of really great, uh, just a lot of really great near reversals for the end of the fall. There was a cool spot where he um, he cut Okada off and he got him into the ropes. He hit the uh, Takagi style GTR and followed it right up from Made in Japan. That was mm-hmm. a, a great near fall. Um, Okada did a backslide out of the last of the dragon into a clothesline. Um, Shingo hit the Takagi driver uh, for a great near fall. That uh, Takagi driver ruled. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the pumping bombers, the Yukon lariats. Like, there's a, there's a ton of great lariat um, counters in here. Uh, Shingo's pumping bomber cutting off the, the spinning rainmaker was great. Um, and then coming towards a stretch, Sarah Okada hits the, the, the Cobra Flosion, which would then uh, lead into the, the rainmaker. There was a spot too early before that where Okada had hit the landslide, and I thought like that because that's the normal closing sequence, and, right? And Shingo was able to reverse or make Rainmaker from there. So a lot of great near falls, great reversals there, building towards the finish of Okada finally hitting that final Rainmaker after the 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 Cobra Flosion there and getting the the big win. I think for me, we're at a point now where we're at like 
10 years of Okada style main events. And while I still think Okada is one of the best wrestlers in the world, and I really do enjoy his matches, the 32 minute time limit structure of his matches sometimes leaves me feeling like I've seen this one too many times. Now this match did turn up in the second half. I mean, it really, really turned up and it was incredible. And uh, one thing I did love about it was that was different is we're starting to get this um, murder. Like we remember when we had murder Ibu, murder Ibushi Mm -hmm. ever since the Kiyomiya angle, there's been this thing where like, if you, if you try Okada in the wrong way, he gets this stoic face and then he's ready to like throw hands and be about it. And that happened in this match. And it's kind of signaling to me that there might be some sort of quasi character change, which who knows with how many wars, you know, in athletic contests Okada has gone through over the past few years, we might be ready for him to go into a phase where he starts throwing bows and starts leaning more into the strong style, stiff, uh, aspect of wrestling that he's always kind of shied a, a, a bit away from and I I would be here for that if that's what is in fact happening and it feels like that a little bit and um, it also felt like this match was maybe somewhat a precursor to what we're going to get between him and Kiyomiya uh, here in the near future but yeah. I feel like the, the, the first like 10 minutes of his matches are super fluous to a point where it's like wash, rinse, repeat, I've seen this before and I do understand there are people that are still engrossed in this style and, and are loving it. But for me, I think I need a little bit, something more, some more creativity. And and it's like, it is getting to the point where it's a bit repetitive, where it's like, I know where this is headed. And when it gets there, it is awesome. But I don't know if I love the journey to get to that top end of the ma- of his style of matches. You know, I don't know if I love the groundwork as much as like, say, for me, I don't know why when Tanahashi does this, it never gets old. Yeah, and I think it doesn't help too when you have a super long show like this, and you had previous matches that were also near thirty minutes as well. That's the other reason why I also felt like I was it, it, the show was to me. I felt like it was too long. I understand it's a very big show; it's capping off the the entire tour, and we complain when they don't give us shows of this caliber. But at the same time, I, I still feel like unless it's a, a really, really, really top-end Wrestle Kingdom-level card, there's no reason for a show to go four hours or four and a half hours or five hours. Right. I feel like you definitely could have shaved time off, off like the last three matches. Um, so I definitely get like this match might have felt too long to others. Um, but to your point of Okada being more aggressive, um, yeah, there was a spot. There was a tombstone spot to the outside, to the floor, which he normally does a DDT. So that was kind of you know up in the aggression there. Then it was a spot too where he he put. A, Remember when he was doing that to Tanahashi during their last trilogy a few years back, and he was kind of leaning into his old heel gimmick at that point as well. Yeah, and then there was a spot where he had Shingo tied up in the barricade, and he kicked the barricade on the back of his neck, and the crowd booed that. So there's definitely this kind of yeah more aggressive, more heel leaning Okada that's starting to come out. Yeah. Um, all that being said, though, the the closing stretch of this match and the way the crowd was reacting was just phenomenal, and it was enough to get me back up to where I was a little bit down on the match. It got me right back to like a, a fever pitch where I was like, 
fuck, it. they did it. They did it again. These guys got me. This is incredible. Let's go. And I, I wanted Shingo to win, and I knew that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and maybe that was another part of it is, like, the inevitability of Okada, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was a great, great contest. And I could see why, depending on your taste, other people, including yourself, are higher on the match than, say, I am. Yeah, I think it was just great too, to see Shingo kind of get his flowers. You know, I think there's been a lot of questions on, you know, is Shingo a real main eventer? Does he draw? Does he actually get crowd reactions? We don't know because he was pushed during the clap crowd era. And I think it was great to see. It was huge Takagi chance, and the crowd was firmly behind him at certain points of the match. And so I think it was kind of great for him to kind of get this big main event, big crowd, crowd behind him. I think it kind of shows the New Japan bookers like, hey, we can put Shingo in these main events. He's going to get great reactions. So eventually we can, we can get him out of this KOPW stuff and get him back um, into the main events. Um, post-match, um, you know, Okada did cu- uh, cut the closing match promo and uh, talked about you know Battle and Valley being next and wanting to show what New Japan is all about until he uh, chooses uh, Tanahashi for his challenger who was sitting on, con- on commentary. So Tanahashi gets in the ring. Except the challenge, so we're going to get Okada and Tanahashi for Battle in the Valley. Yeah, Tanahashi said it was. It's a decade since your Rainmaker shock when he, you know, surprisingly beat him for the title the first time, and he was saying he still needs to have one last run <laughs> with the title, and so he thinks it's going to be this time. It's going to be Tanahashi shocking the world and beating Okada. Which, <laughs> hey, I'm here for that. <laughs> A uh, few questions here. Raising Falcon says, if you could book the IWGP World Championship for the rest of the year, what would you do? Oh, man. Um, I think we're running. <laughs> uh, we have so many more questions, and I'm not great at these. Uh, I, I, I do appreciate the question, but I'm not great at these uh, fantasy booking year-long uh, situations. Like It's like, what would I do? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I would. Put the title on Ishii. <laughs> what i would do <laughs> yeah i think we could, we could spend a whole podcast you know fancy booking and laying out angles and storylines so i don't really have anything off the top of my head right now immediately but i would say i would love osprey back in the mix at some point uh death triangle 720 how do you feel about this heel okada right now i don't feel he is heel unless he's in noah but i do feel like there's an edge to him and if they do want to turn him heel, hey, I was the I was the one beating the drum for that prior to Wrestle Kingdom. You know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. Let's get let's get Jumbo Okada. I'm ready for it. <laughs> Big Boss Okada. Let's go. Yeah, I do like that he's kind of turning up the aggression here, and we'll probably see even more with the Kiyomiya match. But I think they should definitely lean into it. It's going to be something fresh, something new. Yeah, maybe you even yeah go the full turn him heel. Change up chaos, get some new guys in there, really sh- shake up that faction, and just do something different with Okada's character. They need a top heel, period. Yeah. Not, not just a top gaijin heel. I mean, Suzuki's not a heel anymore. Jay White is leaving the company, apparently. They need to do something. Some, there's there's a there's a void there at the top as well. Yeah. Uh, Don Hui 101, what are your thoughts on Tanahashi challenging Okada for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship at Battle in the Valley? Is there a possibility that we see a new champion via help? I would be very shocked if we saw a new champion. I think it's extremely unlikely. As far as the matchup, now that they've gone with it, it makes sense to me. I mean, 
it's a match they've gone with multiple times in the past. The tickets were already sold. Why wouldn't, why would you give away? It's the same reason why I was thinking that they were going to do like Okada versus a minor challenger from North America. But if there was a match that you're going to do in North America where the tickets are already sold and it's a high enough profile match to where you can get away with giving it away without it being like a major main event to a certain extent, you know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Tanahashi's Tanahashi Nokata is probably the one you want to do. Right. And I think that, you know, that screams New Japan for a certain fan base, especially a lot of the Western fans who are watching New Japan while the elite were uh, still there. So I think it's a very kind of nostalgia match. It's one of those matches that you want to kind of check off your bucket list that you saw live. You know, we, we got to see it live um, for G1 in Dallas, and it's just a really cool match. If you get to see it live And so I think it's going to be cool for Battle in the Valley I'd be highly surprised If Tanahashi won And if he did win with help turning heel uh, I think it's just going to be a, a classic New Japan Main event for this, this new model Of shows And I think Okada's going to win Oh, I'm jealous that we didn't get tickets And go out there <laughs> I know yeah <laughs> um, Last question here uh, JML when would you want to see the next rematch between Okada versus Shingo? I wouldn't be opposed hypothetically to them doing it at another big show. Like let's say he wins the new Japan cup and he gets another crack at Sakura Genesis or even dominion. But I feel like the most realistic situation is they run it back in a G one match. Yeah, they'll probably do a G1. Shingo will get the win back, and they could probably set up a, a fall defense of, of Okada is uh, still a champion. Uh, but, but I'm always down to see uh, Okada versus Shingo mix it up anytime. And Okada did say that you know the crowd elevated the match, and he definitely wants to wrestle Shingo again. So we'll see when that matchup will happen. All right, now let's uh, move into previewing Battle in the Valley, which will be coming up this Saturday, February 18th, from the San Jose Civic Center sold-out show. We'll go through, uh, give our predictions for this card. So we got uh, two matches on the pre-show. First, we got Bobby Fish versus David Finley, and then J.R. Kratos versus the android Alex Coughlin. Um, I think that these are two matches that they've done a good job building up on New Japan Strong for those that are paying attention to the product. For many people that haven't been watching, they probably aren't aware that there's any sort of build between Finley and Fish whatsoever. Um, But I kind of see Bobby Fish as a guy that's like a good stepping stone for a resurging Finley before he goes into the New Japan Cup because he's a guy that had a great year last year. And he's one of their homegrown guys. He has no business getting beat by Bobby Fish at this point. Right. Uh, with him being a New Japan cop, definitely screams, you know, him getting the win here. And yeah, like you said, at this point in Bobby Fish's career, I don't see him, you know, getting this huge push in New Japan. So yeah, I see Finley yeah, getting the win here at the Prima Nocta. Kratos and Coglin is a match that has been building and building for almost a, a year plus now. And We've gotten singles matches from them in the past, and they've always been very good, but there's a lot of heat behind this one. So in a certain sense, it's a it's a very fitting, quote-unquote, main event for the pre-show. I don't know how much time they're going to get. 
And I don't know who's going to win necessarily because both men have wins over one another. So this is probably like the definitive end to their feud, especially with Strong changing its structure altogether moving forward. So um, I'm hoping Coglin gets the win here. But I, I, I couldn't tell you that I think it would be a bad decision to have Kratos go over either. I think either way, it really does work. But um, for their personal rivalry and their personal beef, like this is it. Like this is the the end of, you know, the best feud that nobody knows about in New Japan. Right. Yeah. And with that, with the amount of time that they've built and put into this feud, I know there's been a lot of injuries that happened that have stopped matches from continuing the feud. I would think this one would have gotten on the main card, but you know, it, it'll be fine on the on the main event of the pre-show. And, yeah, I would go with Alex Coughlin getting the win here. I don't know what Kratos' contract is going to look like going forward or his future in New Japan. But, you know, Coughlin is one of your, you know, homegrown L.A. Dojo guys. And, I again, right. again I think you need to be doing more of him. So I would get have him get the win here. But uh, look out for the big suplexes, the big lariats, and the big dives from the big boys. Oh, yeah. So then the, the main card will open up with Adrian Quest, Josh Alexander, Mascot Arata, and our good friend Rocky Romero taking on Kevin Knight, Kushida, the DKC, and Volador Jr. I don't know if we want to be good friends with Rocky Romero. Look at what he's doing to one of his good friends. He took his title, he shoved cake in his face, turned on him, told everyone in Arena Mexico to suck it. I don't know, bro. He, he wanted to do that to us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah this match looks really great on paper just in terms of the the combination of different styles and stars from all over wrestling guys from impact and the indies and you know new japan strong as well as like lucha libre so kind of cool amalgamation there but the big defining match is as i mentioned you got rocky romero and volador jr on opposite sides and that's a continuing feud from C- uh, CMLL. Um, one has to wonder if somehow that's going to bleed over into the Fantastica Mania tour that we have upcoming shortly. And um, I don't know who's going to win here, but I think Rocky and Volador is going to be the the key focus of this match. Yeah, part of me wants to say that uh, Volador's team will get the win, so Volador has some momentum and could possibly challenge Rocky again. But they do have the DKC on their they team. They got DKC on their team. So they're probably <laughs> which, losing. Which he's still currently a young lion unless he's going to graduate on this show. So I'm going to go with uh, our good friend Rocky's team getting the win here. Yeah, since they've got Impact World Champion Josh Alexander on the other side, don't be surprised if he beats the DKC. Then again, Adrian Quest is on the other side, and he's he's ripe for you know a pinfall as well. Yeah. Then we'll have the NJPW Strong Open Weight Title match as the champion, Mr. No Days Off, Fred Rosser, will defend the title against Kenta. I think this match is going to be very good, very hard-hitting, um, and very entertaining, but I think we're about to see the end of the Fred Rosser reign. Could be wrong, but uh, as they're moving to this new format, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, this is sort of the end of Fred Rosser in New Japan as we know it. Well, I definitely seem to have plans of him being one of the coaches at the, the new NJPW Academy. Um, but I do think it's time for the switch of title. Like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, his title reign has not been great. And with this whole pay-per-view model, having Kenta as a champion to, to draw for these pay-per-view shows, 
makes a ton of sense to me. So, yeah, I think uh, it's going to be night-night for Mr. Dode's off, and he's going to go to sleep. I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, then we'll have the strong openweight tag team title match. The champions, the Motor City Machine Guns, Alex Shelley and Chris Sabin, will defend against the West Coast Wrecking Crew of Jarrell Nelson and Royce Isaacs. Well, I think maybe I should backtrack because I used the logic that they're changing the whole entire strong structure and taking off the title from a homegrown guy like Fred Ross or due to that. But that doesn't make any sense because I'm going to say the opposite here (laughs) in that I really do think that the West Coast Wrecking Crew have been the premier definitive tag team of the New Japan Strong brand, and they've thus far not held the titles at all. Motor City Machine Guns are are great champions, legends of, you know, the indie scene, legends of Impact and, and Ring of Honor and, you know, all that, and great, you know, guys to have on your ledger for your lineage. But I don't know if you keep them as champions. I feel like it makes more sense personally to get those titles on the West Coast Wrecking Crew sort of as like an attaboy for all the time and hard work that they put in during the pandemic era. Yeah, I just don't know yeah, how much more they're gonna they're gonna use machine guns going forward. Right. Even though they are doing a lot of stuff in impact with him and Kushida and uh Kevin Knight and feuding against the bull club of um, Chris Bay and Ace Austin in uh impact. So they're still kind of using machine guns in both promotions. So I mean they could retain and it could work out, but I agree with you. I, I think West Coast Wrecking Crew that you know, essentially, these titles were really created for them, and they just never really got them yet. So I do think this is a, um, the chance for them to get the win here. At the same time, um, Motor City Machine Guns are the, the bigger names with more cachet, and they might be more marketable long-term if they want to keep doing these pay-per-views. So that's always the possibility, especially since there is no sign of the the impact relationship completely dissolving or anything like that. Right. Then next up, we will have Eddie Kingston versus Switchblade Jay White, which it could possibly be Jay White's last ever New Japan match. Yeah, okay, okay, 890 says, if this is Jay's last New Japan match, why is it against Eddie Kingston? Well, I know that they have been building this Kingston-Jay White rivalry for a while now on NJPW Strong TV, and they were supposed to wrestle a while back, but... um, Eddie Kingston had COVID, and they weren't able to have the match. So this is something that they've been building on TV. Bull Club against you know Eddie Kingston and Homicide and those those guys. So uh, it's had a build. Great talkers. Um, and so I, they were building it, so it makes sense to do it. Yeah, um, like you said. Plus, I mean, I would imagine these are two guys that probably want to work with one another. And just speculating, if hypothetically he's uh, Jay White's going to AEW. There could be an angle here. There might this might be the nice little bridge between New Japan and him getting to AEW. Likewise, if he is going to WWE, maybe he wanted to work Eddie Kingston one time before he bows out of the company. Plus, Eddie Kingston is a guy that has a lot of um, fan following and has done really well on these New Japan Strong tours and. You know, they, they've sold tickets off of the back of his name, and obviously Jay White's Jay White, and so it is kind of a marquee name. Um, 
I will say this though, and this was something that was pointed out by Super J Cast on Twitter. They said if you are in the camp that Jay White isn't leaving and this is all just a work, him being, you know, fifth from the top isn't necessarily like a marquee spot and doesn't necessarily lend itself to the idea that he is going to continue to stick around. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, but I'm looking forward to the match. I, I think Eddie Kingston is a fantastic worker and I love his rough and tumble style of stiff strikes and, you know, big, big Kings road strikes and suplexes and Jay white and him. I think they'll have a really great match. And yeah, I think if Jay white's leaving, then he's probably going to do the, I'm just going to assume Jay white's on his way out. So with that, he might be putting over Eddie or Eddie Kingston might be putting him over or he might be putting over Eddie Kingston. Yeah. I agree with you. And it was interesting, you know, the post-match promo from Osaka, he told Gator to stay in Japan, not, not to come with him to America for this matchup. Um, so maybe we might even get a more babyface Jay White here, and it's more of him, you know, going this back and forth kind of style with Eddie Kingston. Um, so it could be a really fun matchup in that perspective. So, but I agree. I think Eddie Kingston's going to get the win here. We may get the the tearful, emotional goodbye here. Mm-hmm. We also may be looking for the uh, the angle alert, one way or the other, whatever that might be here. Yeah. Then next up, we'll have the Filthy Rules fight as Homicide will take on Filthy Tom Lawler. So this is going to be uh, no ropes, no disqualification matchup here. Yeah, this one's probably going to get bloody, probably very violent. Look for Homicide to bring out the uh, the, the fork and uh, attack Tom Lawler with that. But I've seen these two guys have a, a blood Bloodsport-style match a few years ago, and I thought it was way better than it had any right to be. And this has been a very hate-filled feud anyways. So this is probably going to be your uh, your brawling-style hardcore match of the evening mixed in with, you know, uh, Tom Waller's brand of MMA-style fighting. Yeah. And I would expect uh, Tom to get the win here. You know, longest, Agreed. strong, open-weight champion. I think there's a ton of upside with Tom in the company, and he's probably going to be a feature on these uh, strong pay-per-views moving forward, and I would love to see him back in Japan. Yeah, I, I feel like this is the blow-off, and I don't know why you would put over Homicide in a, in a big blow-off against Tom Lawler at this point. Right, in 2023, yeah. <laughs> and in New Japan. Yeah. Uh, then uh, we'll have the NJPW World Television Title Match, the champion Zack Sabre Jr., will defend against the wild Rhino Clark Connors. Uh, post-match, when Sabre defeated Ishii, he said he was calling out one of those young punks, and the young punk happened to be uh, Clark Connors, who uh, answered the challenge. Yeah, I liked the promo video that they showed for this. I wish it was something that maybe perhaps could have uh, aired during one of the uh, New Beginning shows to garner more attention for this match, but whatever, you know, that's besides the point. The The fact of the matter is this is a title that was supposed to be, you know, based around young talent. And at this point, Clark Connors is easily the youngest challenger for this belt since the only other challenger was, you know, in his forties, Tomohiro Ishii. <laughs> um, and I think him and Zach, this will be a great test for Clark and um, good challenge for Zach Sabre Jr. I don't expect ZSJ to drop the title here. But I'm glad for Clark Connors to be this high up on the card in what is bound to be a, a spectacular match. 
yeah, you know, Clark had that really big breakout moment during Forbidden Door uh, last summer, and so I think it's going to be another chance for him to reconnect West to, with the Western audience in a big match, especially against a guy like Zack Sabre Jr. So I think it's going to be a great platform to elevate Clark Connors. You know, we've been saying it for several weeks now that these LA Dojo guys, they need to be put in bigger spots. They need to be uh, capitalized on what they've created with these guys. And so here's a great opportunity for a guy like Clark Connors to be in a uh, big title matchup against a Zack Sabre Jr., and I, hopefully this will open the doors for Clark being featured in more bigger matches going forward. And we had a question from OKOK890. Do you think Clark Connors could join TMDK after this match with Zach considering TMDK needs a junior? I don't, but it's not impossible. I just feel like they they have a lot of really good things going for them right now. I don't know that they necessarily need a junior this soon. I think that that's something that they can build upon down the road. Right. I feel like doing it right now is just kind of doing it to do it without any kind of build or purpose. I mean, could they do it? Correct. Sure. But, you know, Nichols, Haste, and Zach have a connection. There was a history there. Uh, we don't know what the status is of bad dude Tito in the group, but he's, he's in the group. Zach has already uh, confirmed that. So Zach, Talked about that in a post-match comment where he, he did confirm Badu Tito is still officially a member of Team DK. And then jokingly said the only thing is they need to get him to Japan and they need to get him a more British or Australian sounding name. <laughs> so, yeah, Badu Tito is part of Team DK officially. Gotcha. gotcha. So, yeah, so I don't know if they def- necessarily are in a rush to get a junior. Plus, they have uh, Kosei Fujita. Uh, technically, he could be their junior for right now. I mean, I guess. <laughs> He's a young lion, but yeah. Uh, then we have the uh, double main event. So double main event one for the IWGP women's <laughs> title. Kyrie will defend the title against Mercedes Monet. Monet. <laughs> Monet. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, it, this is the match. This is the match. How much? What's the attendance of the show? It's like two thousand, right? Yeah, yeah. This is the match that drew two thousand souls to <laughs> you know, all on their back, all on their back. But um, I am excited for this match. It's the first major um, women's match for New Japan in North America ever. Uh, it's the first uh, title defense that's going to get a good amount of time uh, considering the atrocity that occurred at Wrestle Kingdom between Tam Nakano and uh, Kyrie. not their fault, but they just w- were not given a lot of time. And it's the first, you know, showing of Mercedes Monet outside of WWE, outside of that system and their structure um, for uh, a competing organization. And it's going to be very interesting to see what Kyrie and Mercedes are willing and able to do with the uh, restraints kind of lifted. Yeah. And, and I hope it ends up being a success. Um, you know, Kyrie, I'll see great wrestler. Mercedes Monet was a great wrestler. And also uh, Sasha Banks. So, I mean, they're going to be giving them the time here to succeed. And hopefully it's a great match. Cause I'm, I'm sure, you know, going forward, there's gonna be a lot of plans to have the women's title be a highlight feature on these NJPW strong uh, pay-per-views. And, you know, 
I'm wondering who's going to win here. It's very hard to say. You know, Kyrie. It is hard. Kyrie just only having one defense and, you know, the inaugural champion. But they are paying uh, a lot of money for money. (laughs) And uh, you got to think that they're going to want to capitalize on the popularity of Mercedes um, in the West. um, Have her be a highlight feature on some of these strong pay-per-views. And I think she's going to have some big matches coming up in April in Japan. Um, So they, they might pull the trigger here and give the belt to Monet. Well, you know, she is confirmed for a big match for stardom in April. But beyond that, I, we don't know. And, you know, based on the reports, these were this is a short-term deal, a big money contract with uh, very few dates. And you have to wonder, okay, she is obviously here in the States, the A-side on this match. Um most of the people that are there, not most of the people, but a good portion of the fans that are there are there to see Mercedes Monet. She's going to have a lot of support on that evening, and people are anticipating a title change. But from a business perspective, a couple of things I've noticed, and I was talking with Rich about this today, is like the IWGP women's title has had little to, and I mean, I'm not watching stardom um, you know, actively, but from what I gather, there's very little mention or focus on that title within their universe right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which kind of still is ringing those alarm bells where I, my conspiratorial mind where I'm like, how long before new Japan has a women's division? Because this doesn't seem to be something that's being focused on in stardom as well as new Japan. It just kind of feels like a new Japan women's belt period. That being said, um, you, let's say you do put the title on Mercedes because if you don't, there's going to be a lot of disappointed fans there that night and a lot of disappointed fans on the internet afterwards. But how do you get the title off of her after you do that? That's my question. How many dates do you have? And who would she agree to lose that, that title to? Because if you ask me, when it comes to Japan, there's only three women that I realistically think that she'd be willing to do the honors to. And that would be a rematch with Kyrie, a match with Mayu Iwatani, or a match with the current um, red belt holder, Julia. Those are the only three women that I think have enough high profile and cachet that I feel like she'd even be willing to consider losing to. I, you couldn't tell me she's going to lose to a Shuri or a Starlight Kid or an Azumi or someone like that. You know what I mean? Right. And you also have to think too, like they want the IWGP women's champion to be somebody who has a name in America. So to me, I think Kyrie or Mayu Iwatani would probably be the two, the top two options to get the belt off of her. Um, probably Mayu. Well, I know there was issues with Mayu. She was supposed to be the first champion and she didn't want the title. <laughs> she, she wanted a raise that she was going to have to be doing all these U S shows. And they were like, it's not for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe it goes it goes back to Kyrie, and then you know Kyrie does have a name here in the in the West based off her time in WWE. So they could use her um, as a drawing card on these shows. Yeah, I think they could split the wins there, and that would maybe make sense. But um, maybe that's not quite the illustrious uh, IWGP title reign that people are imagining for Sasha. <laughs> but um, the match, in a nutshell, I hope is really good because. Both women are fantastic performers, but I'm still very much focused on the uh, the politics of it all. 
and the business side of it and wh- how it all plays out. Because if it's not one of these New Japan women, or I'm sorry, one of these stardom women that she's willing to lose to, then then you start asking yourself, well, who else is out there? And it's like the only other like former WWF star that would be willing to work outside that I think they could get that this is something I could, and people are going to say it would never happen, but knowing the history of new Japan and their willingness to work with former WWE stars, I could see them bringing in Nia Jax. <laughs> she, didn't she just resign with WWE? I think, I don't know. I think that was just like a one time Royal rumble appearance. Okay, because she had merch like right after. Then maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I don't watch that show. <laughs> I don't watch it either, but I did see on Twitter like people were sharing that she got merch like right after her Rumble appearance. But I okay, mean, well then, other than that, I mean, I I don't think that there's anyone like let's say an AEW that they could bring in that she would do a uh, a job to or anything like that. And that's where we're going to run into issues. Is like who is big enough and important enough for someone like Sasha Banks to be willing to do business with and and lose, you know, before she hypothetically does whatever is next in her career, aside from, you know, this uh, small dalliance in Joshi. Yeah. Um, then the, uh, the main event, main event number two, for the IWGP World Heavyweight t- title, the champion, Kazuchika Okada, will defend against the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi. Um, I mean, there's not much more to say about this other than Tanahashi and Okada is undoubtedly the greatest feud and defining feud of the peak era of New Japan. You know, um, it's the feud that launched Okada's career. It's the feud that, you know, kept Tanahashi relevant at the top level for so many years and it was so vital and important to the expansion of new japan into the west and sure we've seen it a million times before but it's never been bad in fact it's every time it's ever happened it's been great and it's going to be great again and i imagine they'll probably go out there and play the hits but sometimes when it's one of your like favorite bands all you want to do is see them play the hits you don't want to see them play (laughs) their new music so um, I'm very much looking forward to Okada and Tanahashi, two guys that are extremely comfortable with one another, and they they always go out there and kill it. And it's going to be very heated, very emotional. And um, for all the fans that said that after Sasha went on second to top and all her fans walked out, well, you would be a fool to walk out of Tanahashi and Okada. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine very many people are going to actually do that. And if they do, they're going to look like idiots because this is probably going to be the match of the night. And it, it's going to be very difficult for anything to top this, even with Tanahashi, you know, in a declining state. Yeah, there, there's never been a bad Tanahashi Okada match. They're a, a walking 4.5 star <laughs> match on, on a bad day. <laughs> uh, they're going to go out here, like you mentioned, they're going to play the hits and it's going to be incredible. They're going to do all the great. Rainmaker reversals, high fly flow reversals, sling blade reversals. Um, they're gonna do all the big stuff, all the great stuff, and, it, and it's gonna be an epic matchup. And yeah, I think Okada is going to retain here as he continues to build momentum into the uh, the Kiyomiya match. Uh, we had a question here from Don Homie One on One: Thoughts on card placement for the Battle in the Valley show and the so-called backlash over the co-main event status. 
from Monet's stands. And did NJPW underestimate the hype for this show by putting this show in a small arena? Also, thoughts on the Battle in the Valley card? Well, I'll work in reverse. Battle in the Valley card, fire, top to bottom. Very much looking forward. I mean, this is a stacked show. It's incredible. Yeah, it's a great card. I do think they were a little bit um, too conservative by booking this building. I, I, I think that that was uh, maybe short-sighted on their part. Um, as far as the backlash, I think that they did something very brilliant. They called it main event number one and main event number two. Co-main event. Now, for most wrestling fans, they know what co-main event means. <laughs> or double main event. It means the one that goes on last is the main event, and the one before it is just a co-main event. Just like, you know, any other, you know, it's a very important match, but it's not the main event. Maybe to some fans it is, but it's not the main event. Mm-hmm. These Sasha stands don't seem to know that, bro. Like, I was on Twitter, and, like, I saw three reactions. One was a bunch of people being like, fuck yeah, she fucking did it. Let's fucking go. Main event. (laughs) (laughs) They think think because it's called the main event, she's in the actual main event. (laughs) So that was the first one. The second reaction I saw from so many people was, she better go on last. <laughs> Not realizing that this is the match order, my guy. They put the match order out. It is official. It says official match order. And they're like, she better go on last. <laughs> and yeah, they're not. And then the third one was just people being completely confused as to what that even means. Or just, you know, just kind of bewildered. And I think it was smart on New Japan's part because they didn't create, like, if they had just called the the main event the main event and called this just, you know, match number nine on the card, there would have been a lot of outrage. But they, calling it main event or, or double main event caused enough, like, confusion with that fan base and that audience that, they don't know how to like <laughs> react to it. And so by the time they realize what's actually going on, they're not going to collectively be able to organize their rage and their hate. And so many other things are going to happen in wrestling between now and then in this next week that they've averted the crisis altogether. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair too, I mean, Kenny and Osprey were considered double main event one of wrestle kingdom. So Kyrie, right, but, and- we, but we all knew that that wasn't the main event. Like, and we weren't bitching about it. Mm-hmm. We're just like, okay, that is what it is. So, yeah, so, I mean, if, if Osprey and Omega can be considered, you know, double main, one, double main event one and not close, then I think, you know, Monet Here's what I think it is, Jeremy. This, this is a fan base that has been fed lies for decades by WWE, and they believe everything they tell them. And so they're not used to being told something by a company They that's, like, just straightforward. They just, they believe it. They're just like, Oh, it's double main event. All right, she's in the main event. I believe this. You know, they, they they're used to just believing whatever the company tells them, whatever the company line is. And they're like, "Fuck yeah, she made it." Double history has been made. Double main event. Let's go. Oh my gosh! It's like it's like it's like when she headlined against um, Bianca on the first night of WrestleMania, and they're like, "She's a WrestleMania headliner." Yeah. 
That's the same thing as this. Literally the exact same thing. <laughs> Main event number one, headline of WrestleMania, except we all know that the match that goes on last on the last night was the real wrestlemania main event it doesn't matter to them the optics are like that's a main event so they were told this is a main event it's a main event they're happy and it's fine it's like when you are when you have a little kid and you're playing video games and they want to play and you don't want them to fuck up your game so you just you don't plug in the controller and oh just bro it to them it is my little brother all time <laughs> yeah everyone's done that to every little cousin or little kid that they're watching or little brother and sister and it, it makes them happy and they don't they don't know any different hey the sasha stands the crew is the crisis of the crew has been averted they <laughs> they don't know it they haven't figured it out yet and they will figure it out one day and you know imagine being upset about this card you're gonna see tanahashi and okada here's the other thing i will say for the argument this is the last thing and then Actually, well, there's one other thing we should talk about before we move on from this topic. But for anyone that's like, they sold all the tickets, that is a valid argument. But let me just tell you this. In a 2,000-seat building, if they had announced Okada and Tanahashi and never announced Mercedes versus Kyrie, they would have sold out, period. They did not need... And, and I don't want to take anything away from the women because what they did was monumentous and it does show the the drawing power of, of um, Sasha Banks. But the reality at this point, now that we know what the full card is, if this was just a nine-match card and we had the exact same card without Sasha and without Kyrie, they would have sold out, no doubt. A 2,000-seat building, that would have been cake. This would not have been, you know, it's not like it was like... Um, you know, where the Mavericks played, where Mark, you know, when they did G1 in Dallas, where it was a, you know, <laughs> thousands and thousands of seat building. Like we already, we've already seen a show that was outdrawn, headlined by um, Tanahashi and Okada that did a way, way, way bigger number than this in Dallas. So, right. That was like what, 5,000? No, there's like, I don't even remember. There was a lot. It was more than that, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, they would have a 2,000-seat building featuring all these stars, featuring Jay White, featuring Eddie Kingston, featuring Tanahashi and Okada. Like, Zack Sabre Jr., Zack Sabre Jr., Tom like, Waller. This, this show was going to sell out anyways. So like, I, I want to give credit to the women because they did sell it out before anything else was, was mentioned. But to imply that it wouldn't have done business without them, that's not factual at this point anymore. Yeah, it's not like they, they drew like 10,000 people. Right. And and they did draw. Uh, these were not cheap tickets. They're doing a great gate. It's like a quarter of a million dollars. It's a big deal for them on this level. But they would have done it without them anyways at this point, and that's just the fact. Right. I mean, it, it was reported that New Japan officials weren't even expecting it to sell out as quickly as they did with uh, Mercedes and Kyrie announced. No, they they were holding they were holding back announcing Tanahashi and Okada. Because they thought that they needed to announce Tanahashi and Okada to cinch the deal, to close the deal, because they knew that that was going to draw. Right. And then by the time this happened, it was like, all right, well, we don't even, you know, it was just a happy coincidence. So um, last thing, I know that we're not a WWE podcast, but this is going head to head with Elimination Chamber, which I think is very unfortunate considering this is a a pay-per-view in North America. And it's not like a regular elimination chamber card where, 
you know, in the past, it was like a show that they didn't care about that wasn't going to do business. Like it's headlined by a, a pretty hot feud between Roman Reigns and Sami Zayn. And there's a lot of buzz and attention. And I do think it's very unfortunate that they're going head to head with that show. And I do think it's going to hurt the pay-per-view number quite a bit. Yeah, that's one of those where you think they, they probably should have done some more scouting and research to see what the competition was for the night. Agreed. Or, or even, you know, I know people like the Saturday pay-per-views, but maybe even move it to Sunday or something, you know, do something different. You know, football's over right now. Uh, Sunday night might have worked out better. But, yeah, I think, yeah, it's definitely going to hurt the pay-per-view buys and just the, the talk of the town. You know, a lot of people are invested in Roman and Sammy and, you know, uh, Edge and Beth versus um, Rhea and Finn Balor and the, the chamber matches, the U.S. title chamber match. There's a lot going on in that pay-per-view that WWE fans are going to be really invested in and probably will not want to watch uh, Battle in the Valley live. There hasn't been a good, valid uh, Elimination Chamber show since uh, Kofi Mania in 2019. So, you know, we've been looking at like two or three years of like substandard uh, elimination chamber shows where the champion wasn't even really on them, didn't defend his title. So I think maybe there was that thought that this was just going to be a throwaway B show before WrestleMania. And unfortunately it's in Montreal and it's got a razor hot or, you know, um, you know, white hot uh, feud between Sami Zayn. I mean, I'll tell you, it's, it's so hot that like, I don't even like WWE and I want to see that match. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that kind of tells you, and I'm, and like, I'm I'm in a house where like we watch the WWE pay-per-views and it's going to be persnickety to figure out like well how do we how are we going to split this like <laughs> what which one are we watching first and what's going to happen so um for you know they're trying to attract a western audience and it's going to be hard to attract the the western fans obviously there's people that don't pay attention to WWE that will be willing to watch this but you also want to get the attention of your casual wrestling fans who are probably going to be, and I mean, the thing is they're going to be charging for this. Most Mm -hmm. people have Peacock. Peacock is $5 a month. It's already got more visibility. Like it's going to hurt them for sure. And that sucks. Yeah. Well, that is battle in the Valley coming up this weekend on pay-per-view real quick. Let's just talk about the announcements for the new Japan cup 2023. So it was revealed uh, today, the, the bracket for the this year's New Japan Cup tournament set to begin on March 5th. This year's tournament will have 24 competitors with eight receiving first-round buys. The winner will receive an IWGP World Heavyweight Championship match at Sakura Genesis on April 8th. So the eight wrestlers receiving uh, first-round buys are Kenta, Chase Owens, Jeff Cobb, Will Ospreay, IWGP Tag Team Champion Hiroki Goto, Never Openweight Champion Tama Tonga, Rev Pro British Heavyweight Champion Great Okan, and the current NJPW World Television Champion Zack Sabre Jr. So in the first round, Sunday, March 5th, which is also going to be the 51st anniversary show, we'll have Sonata vs. Taichi and Naito vs. ELP. Then Monday, March 6th, Evil vs. Narita, Yano versus Mark Davis, David Finley versus Ishii, Umino versus Yujiro Takahashi, March 10th, Yoshihashi versus Kyle Fletcher, Chingo Takagi versus Aaron Hanare. Then for the second round matchups on Saturday, March 11th, we'll have Sonata, Taichi winner versus Kenta, 
the winner of Naito and ELP versus Chase Owens. And on Sunday, March 12th, the winner of Yoshihashi and Kyle Fletcher versus Goto. And the winner of Shingo versus Aaron Hanare versus Tamatanga. Then Monday, March 13th, the winner of Yano and Davis versus Will Ospreay. And the winner of Narita and Eagle versus Jeff Cobb. And then on Wednesday, March 15th, the winner of Finley and Ishii versus Great Okan. And the winner of Umino and Yudro versus Zack Sabre Jr. The quarterfinals will be held on Friday, March 17th. And Saturday, March 18th with the semifinals set for Sunday, March 19th. The tournament final will take place on Tuesday, March 21st. Uh, we had a couple questions here. Def Triangle 720, who do you think should win the New Japan Cup? Emerald Burning Hammer, what are your early semi-final predictions for both New Japan Cups? Uh, Dom Hui 101, with the, predict- with the bracket of the New Japan Cup being released, what are your early predictions for the tournament? Pumping Bama, what do you think about the LA Dojo guys missing the cup? What do you think about the integration of the LA Dojo into proper NJPW in general? Will they only be there to fill spots for tag leagues until they eventually leave? Or do they have an actual plan for these guys? And Senior Sobrero 3K with the New Japan Cup feel having being revealed. How is anyone but the man of the people, Taichi, going to be able to win this <laughs> year? Oh, man. Uh, a lot to unload there. So um, I don't have an early prediction just yet for the cup. Yeah, I mean, looking at the uh, looking at the bracket, it's hard because I mean there are kind of top names in there, but a lot of people who have recently had title matches, it's kind of hard to to pick who's going to. Uh, I I don't have a feeling right now with anybody. Like Osprey kind of seems like the hottest person in the tournament, but his whole story is revolving around the U.S. title and Kenny, so I have a hard time seeing him be the winner. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And I think that this uh, tournament is right for upsets. There's a lot of people that I think should be in the tournament that we're used to that are just not there. Um, And then as some of the listeners mentioned, it's weird that we don't have some of the names from like New Japan Strong or the LA Dojo that could easily be rounding out the tournament. I mean, on the one hand, I I think it's nice that we have a, a, a more tight, concise tournament. But then I look at the the brackets, and a lot of the first-round matches aren't matches I want to see in the first place. And so I feel like they could have included and integrated some of the outside talent or some of the missing talent into this tournament to do something a little bit more compelling. Um, it is interesting. There's no Suzuki. There's no Tanahashi. There's no Okada. Um, no Hikaleo. So some of these omissions are a little suspect. And again, I think it's less egregious than say last year but i don't understand how they decided which of these guys got buys especially for instance the 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 most glaring one is like why is chase owens get a buy yeah that's the one that's a big question there most of them the rest of them make sense you have you know the four champions goto tamatanga okan saber that makes sense will osprey was just the former u.s champ he just beat taichi that makes sense kento will probably be the strong openweight champion coming into this so that will eventually end up making sense. Uh, yeah, then Owens and Jeff Cobb, it's like, all right, what do those two guys do to get buys? Yeah, I, I really don't know. It hasn't been um, clarified, but, you know, I guess that's the deal. Um, obviously, we're going to go more in depth with the New Japan Cup. Everyone is very excited with the announcement, but uh, this one is, it, it's a little, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of earlier New Japan Cup brackets. 
you know, mm. what we used to see in the past. It, it's much more mid-card focused yeah. as opposed to, like, top high-end um, guys. Down the down the closing stretch, though, I, I think we're still ripe to get some pretty big matchups in the quarterfinals and the finals and everything like that. But um, on its surface, I think it's an interesting tournament, but it's not one that I think is chock full of bangers. Right. There, I think there might end up being some low-key ones, but on paper right now, it doesn't scream like this is going to be like the best in ring new japan cup yeah for me it's too early for predictions but i i'm also I, I we don't have time to go in depth with it but yeah i i'm not in favor of how they've been handling the la dojo integration at this point and i think it's we're getting to a point where it's uh it's glaringly obvious that there's some sort of issue with utilization when it comes to those guys yeah i'm not sure what the, what the problem is but those guys should all of them should have been in this tournament and these guys should have been used throughout the New Beginning Tour, um, and they should be utilized more in New Japan, in Japan. All right, well, let's jump into the news very quickly. Uh, this past weekend, um, the most recent Noah show, Okada and Naito both showed up on that show. Um, Okada uh, attacked Kiyomiya after he retained his uh, GHC title in the defense and gave him the Rainmaker and cut a scathing promo on the Noah fans and on Kiyomiya and how he didn't even want to be in their ring. And he is now the top heel in Noah, even though he doesn't <laughs> work there. Um, and then Naito also showed up in his full garb, full on ring attire and um, had a face off with Kijimuto who was on the uh, commentary desk. And we had some questions here. Dom homie one one said thoughts on Okada and Naito pulling up the recent pro wrestling Noah. And will there be a response by pro wrestling Noah? Hawaiian Punch PB said, with Naito and Okada invading the Noah show, did these guys actually buy their tickets asking for a friend, Cano? <laughs> and Senior Sombrero 3K said, following the Rainmaker heard around the world on Sunday, are you guys hoping we get super serious pissed off Okada for a while? Yeah, so I thought it was great to have Okada and Naito show up on Noah to help build up heat for their matches coming up for um Muto's retirement show for Tokyo Dome show, um, adding some you know interest into those matchups. Uh, yes, I definitely want to see this more serious, you know, cocky, arrogant Kazuchika Okada. Um, I think, like you mentioned earlier, it just adds a different flavor to his matches when he's uh, more aggressive and kind of breaking that pattern of the you know the traditional Bayface New Japan main event. And yeah, I don't know if these guys bought tickets. I mean, they, they just kind of ran in. Maybe there's there's a mole in Pro Wrestling Noah who's who's letting these guys in. Um, but yeah, I think Kendall needs to you know check the the box office and see what's going on. Nice, I I totally agree, and I I think that um, this new side of Okada potentially uh, being a long term thing would be really really cool. Um, in other news, Hiromu, it is confirmed now, as we mentioned earlier, Hiromu will defend the IWGP Junior title against Leo Rush at the New Japan Cup Finals on March 21st. Um, aside from that, other news, the story that was going around was that Mercedes Monet was making more than Chris Jericho uh, made here is incorrect. So that was an initial report that we'd heard, and um, we're now finding out that that is not true. Uh, the New Japan Dojo in Los Angeles is opening up classes for the public. They announced the NJPW Academy open to men and women over the ages of 18 and will start their first classes on March 27th. 
Bateman and the DKC will be coaching beginners, and Kushida and Fred Rosser will be coaching the more advanced students. Okay, okay, 890 said, do you guys think New Japan and Ibushi announcing their schools at the same time is a coincidence? I think definitely a coincidence. It seems like this was kind of part of the plan for you know what's going on with New Japan of America and trying to increase the, the pipeline there for the, the LA Dojo. Abushi's always intended to do a school and his contract came up and I think uh the LA Dojo's always intended to do this. And also this is pretty common for most wrestling schools to have this kind of structure. So um Impact Wrestling and New Japan Pro Wrestling are teaming up for a joint pay-per-view. The promotion revealed on Thursday that the Multiverse United, Only the Strong Survives show, will be taking place at the Globe Theater on Thursday, March 30th, 2023. It's going to air live on Fight TV. A few of the uh, first early announced matches, we have Josh Alexander versus Kushida, Jeff Cobb versus Moose, and Speedball Mike Bailey versus Will Ospreay. In addition... Uh, talent from both companies um, have been advertised to appear on the show and the impact knockouts division will also take part in the show. Uh, This past week on impact Kushida versus Chris Bay took place and will be airing soon. Uh, Impact impacts, no surrender February 24th pay-per-view in Las Vegas. Uh, They announced that there will be a matchup between Kenta ace Austin and Chris Bay from bullet club versus Kushida and the motor city machine guns. Um, Additionally, there was uh, news that Zack Sabre Jr. returned to Beyond Wrestling. Um, He's coming back for the first time since 2017 at uh, Perfection or Vanity Show on Sunday, February 26th, streaming live on Indie Wrestling starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. So uh, definitely want to check that out. And then last bit of news here, uh, Wrestling Revolver on March 4th. Their show will be called Wrestling Revolver Drip, and it will feature a match between Jonathan Gresham and Kushida. Nice. Well, uh, we are running up pretty close to time here. We have a few questions here. Do you want to move in next week or try to run through them? I think we could just run through them real quick. Short answers. All right. So uh, from front of the show, Floyd Johnson Jr. Is Pat Mahomes the Okada of the NFL? They call Mahomes Money Mahomes. I don't watch fake sports. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Barry Walsh, do you think there's a possibility Sonata gets involved in the Muto vs. Naito match? The latest storyline of him being lost could see him turn on Naito, costing him his mentor in Muto, and going forward, Sonata uses Muto's ring gear or something. I know it's a long shot, but do you think this would be a good idea, or should Muto just do the job in his last match? I don't think you want to overbook that, but I don't think it would be uh, awful to have something with the Sonata storyline leading to an interaction with Muto, but I, I don't know how likely it is. Yeah, maybe a post-match angle, but I I doubt them doing something mid-match, especially, you know, Muto. He wants all the spotlight for himself. Uh, MJSPR, does NJPW need more heels? Who needs to step up and fill the credible top heel role in the company? Without fantasy booking that, because we're running short on time, yes, they there is a... a a vacuum where they're lacking top heels right now. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it earlier. Definitely need some more top heels. Uh, Dom Homie 101 with Kota Ibushi's departure from NJPW. Well, be his legacy in NJPW. How would his run in New Japan be remembered? Where does he rank among the all-time greats in New Japan? What are your favorite Kota Ibushi matches and moments in New Japan? Don't have time to wax poetic about Kota Ibushi all day, but you guys know we love him. One of the greatest of all time. 
Uh, it is unfortunate that his run came in the middle of the pandemic and maybe he didn't get the roses that he deserved. But, I mean, his body work speaks for itself. Yeah, well, we can literally do a three-hour episode answering all those questions, and maybe we will in the future do some kind of Kota Ibushi uh, retrospective. Also, have thoughts on UFC 284. What's next for the fighters that fought on the card? Great question. We got another question about that, so I'll kind of answer it here in just a bit. Uh, Hawaiian Punch BV, Teton, and Soberano Jr. is going to be one of the main events for Fantastica Mania, and they've had great matches before. If Soberano Jr. impresses, do you think they'll invite him again for a non-Fantastica Mania tour? I know he hasn't impressed in the non-Fantastica Mania tours before, but I think he deserves another shot. Teton wasn't too impressive in his first couple of best Super Junior tours, and look at him now. Possibly, if he if he's very very impressive and has a great look and connects with the audience, then it's very possible that that could happen. Yeah, I mean, Soberano Junior, very talented guy, and yeah, similar to Teton, it just kind of had to adjust to that you know New Japan style working with non Luchador. So if he can continue to adjust, and you know, I'm sure Teton can help him out. Then I think yeah, he could definitely be used more going forward. Also, asked you check out the Volkanovski versus Makachev fight this past weekend. Who did you have winning? Do you think Volkanovski is still the number one pound-for-pound pound fighter after a close loss? So, again, because we're close on time, I'm not going to discuss all of UFC 284. I will say uh, I thought it was ridiculous that they had an interim featherweight title fight in the co-main event when the featherweight champion was in the main event. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I I loved the Volkanovski-Makachev fight. I thought Volkanovski won that fight. I had him winning... Uh, three to two, and I'm I was very surprised. I mean, literally shocked that Makachev won, especially the four rounds to one. That was an egregious scorecard. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't think it was number one versus number two, pound for pound. I know most uh, publications had it that way. I kind of like Fight Matrix's um, pound for pound list because it, it's run by an algorithm that's based on all sorts of different criteria that are, I think are more real world based and they kind of had Volkachev or I'm sorry, Makachev um, more rightly aligned at like number six or number seven pound for pound leading into that fight. And after the fight, just based on their metrics, they put him just a slightly above Volk Volk's number three. They got, um, uh, and Ganu, number one, pound for pound, based on the results of that fight. And I got to tell you, I think that that's probably fair. But I thought Volkanovski won that fight. I think he wins a rematch, too. I think he uh, kind of exposed a few weaknesses in Makachev and showed that he's maybe not quite the boogeyman that everyone has made him out to be thus far. And I mean, he's only fought so many top 10 guys leading up into his title run anyways. I mean, there were a lot of questions on the table to begin with, but uh, I thought it was a great fight. I think both guys are very talented. I think Volkanovski has a home at 155, and I think he could be the champion there for sure. Yeah, I thought it was a great fight. I feel like Volk was definitely more of the aggressor in the fight, but um, Islam was definitely had more parts of grappling and control, and what I've noticed in the last few UFCs, it, it feels like the, the, the judges award more if you have more like grappling control of your opponent versus a guy being more aggressive and getting more strikes in they're not supposed to they they ratified the um unified mma judging scoring system a couple years ago and the rules are supposed to be 
first and foremost, who did the most damage. That's the number one rule. Who did more damage? And if you hurt someone or nearly submitted them, that counts the most. After that, it's accumulation of damage. After that, it's control. And that means like dominant positions and grappling. Dominant positions and grappling really are not supposed to mean anything if you don't threaten with strikes and if you don't try to submit them. And he did get a couple close um, neck cranks and was threatening the rear naked choke, but Makachev really didn't do much with Volkanovsky on the ground at all. And Volkanovsky was stuffing takedowns and was able to stand up against a Dagestani wrestler, which is kind of unheard of in the UFC. And he won in every single striking criteria on the fight stats. Like, he outstruck Makachev. Um, the only... The only thing on the fight stats that Makachev beat him in was takedowns and total time controlling the fight, which was just dominant position. But, I mean, he was getting outstruck on the dude's back. I don't see how he won the fight. <laughs> he got dropped. He was hurt. It didn't make sense to me at all. I, I thought he. I only thought that um, Makachev won rounds one and four. I thought he lost two, three, and five personally. Yeah. Uh, last question here. He says, love the Fedor talk last week. I noticed that a name was missing from your list of goats, and his name is Jose Aldo. The man was dominant in a deep featherweight class and was a top 10 fighter in a second weight class. To quote the great RJJ, y'all must have forgot. No, um, I, I, I didn't forget him, and I think he's definitely on the short list with all those great legends that I mentioned earlier. It's just um, the talk was about Fedor. It wasn't about Aldo specifically, you know what I mean? Um, If if you think he's part of that discussion, um, there's definitely a discussion to be had there, especially with how competitive he was in his later career, even just recently before he retired. So, um, no, I didn't forget. I I love Jose Aldo. (laughs) Nice. Well, that's going to take us to recommended match of the week. So we took a break uh, last week with me being out. So we're going to do some fresh picks for this week. So, I have the excursion match of the week going to go to Impact Wrestling with Ace Austin and Chris Bay versus Kushida and Kevin Knight. This is up on NJPW World under the Impact section, so you can watch that world, watch that match if you have a, a New Japan World subscription. Awesome. And then I am just double-checking to make sure that the match I'm going to uh, recommend for recommended match of the week is not on our list of matches that I've recommended p- previously, and it is not. So um, I am going to go with the IWGP heavyweight title match from um, the Nippon Budokan on March 5th, 1994, as, oh, you know, and it's not a title match. I apologize. It's a special singles match as Jushin Thunder Liger moves up from junior heavyweight to face Shinya Hashimoto. Nice. Looking forward to taking that one. I know you've uh, talked about that match a lot before, so uh, that should be a fun matchup to watch. Well, that's going to wrap things up here for us this week. Next week, we'll be back to... Uh, review Battle in the Valley and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. So if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping a Strong Style logo. 
Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. You can follow the network at Social Suplex. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. On Instagram, we're at Suplex. On Reddit, I'm the pro black guy. Y'all just keeping a strong style. You can email me, Jeremy at SocialSuplex.com. Check out all the other shows that we have on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences, hosted by Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite, hosted by Floyd Johnson Jr. and Austin Tumowitz. The AW Match Guide Podcast, hosted by Sir Sam Brown. And the Great Match Generator, hosted by Danny Kukler. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Ichiban. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.